welcome to Very Honored Frater BT's Esoteric Podcast, episode 54, in which I interview Kes Fry. This is actually our second interview. Kes Fry has recently published The Will of Divine Love, Centering Prayer and Spiritual Psychology. He met Thomas Keating in 1989 and has been involved with Centering Prayer ever since. He offers introductory Centering Prayer workshops, facilitates prayer groups and retreats, and is active in prison ministry. But first, I'd like to introduce a new segment called... In reference to Lon Milo Duquette's quote that it's all in your head, you just have no idea how big your head is. Lon Milo Duquette wrote a poem on Facebook a couple of days ago. Well, I got to thinking after hearing this poem that from any rational point of view, Edward Kelly made up the entire Enochian system. And similarly, well... I'll just let you hear his poem. More Than Balls by Lon Milo Duquette Buddha sat down all alone beneath the Bodhi tree and did not get up till he was wise. Well, maybe once to pee. Muhammad's cave was very small. There was only room for one and Jesus prayed alone all night. He was God's only son. Joseph Smith was by himself when he bumped into Moroni. No one helped him write that book, but he was such a phony. These were men, old Aeon guys, who weren't at all romantic. Some were evil, some insane, and all of them pedantic. Before this age, it took more than balls to show us all what's holy. It took more than Iwas and Uncle Al. It took Rose Kelly. Thank you very much, Ella, for that recital. You can find Ella at a sister podcast, StoopingStarlight.com. Stooping Starlight is a blog and podcast that is aimed at anyone interested in current thalamic thought, art, expression, literature, magic, ritual, and writing. The only difference from any other blog or podcast discussing the same subjects is that the content is curated, written, and spoken by women only. Speaking of sister podcasts, check out firstmatterradio.blogspot.com. This is a new podcast focusing on traditional Golden Dawn practice. The first episode hasn't aired yet, but when it does, it will feature her interview with Stefan Edmonds a couple weeks ago. The podcast is hosted by Terry Appleton. She will be a guest on this podcast sometime next week. We will be discussing, among other things, Pamela Coleman-Smith's natal chart. Our guest tonight, Kes Fry, interviewed my dad in 1990. Thursday, July 26th, 1990. I'm up in Sierra Madre Canyon, Southern California, at the home of my friend John Dan Reeb. 
who has been teaching for, well, 24 years at Pasadena City College. English, it's supposed to be. 24 years. Mm -hmm. and if you'd like to hear that interview, check out Edward Reeb's podcast, Episode 8, Professor John Dan Reeb, Part 2. I listened to that interview many times, and so I was very familiar with Kess before I ever had a proper conversation with him. Occasionally I would search for him online, but I didn't know how to spell his name. It's spelled K-E-S-S-F-R-E-Y, I now know. But a few years ago, we got in touch through social media. Then when he was here in town visiting his sister, we were able to meet up. And that was when I recorded the interview that I used for episode two of the Esoteri Nerd podcast. Anyhow, he's back in town, he's just written a book, and so, without further ado, let's get to that interview, shall we? Greetings, Fratter, welcome to the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. You're right. Fratter. Oh, I'm Fratter, oh, well, thank you, it's, it's a pleasure to be here, Edward. Yeah, so it's uh, good, to see, good to see you. And, uh, I brought some things to show you also in my bag here. Oh, cool. You know, a couple of cop copies of some of my books. Nice, nice. Particularly the, the newest one, which uh, you said you had misplaced or something. I know. I, I, uh, yeah, everything's kind of scattered. But, uh, oh, another thing that might be an interesting thing to have around for this. And I'll edit it later so it's more concise. Oh, okay. So we're recording now. Yeah. But I, I, uh, I have these, my dad's old uh, esoterica finders. Um, esoterica finders? Yeah. This is all oh, binders. His, his research from his esoteric studies. Oh my god, that must be a treasure trove. Yeah, it's, it's good stuff. It's funny, when I look at it, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, this, you know. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, these are all of his articles from Louisiana Mound Society, do you remember that? Oh yeah, he got real in interested in archaeology. Yeah. And the uh, truer, deeper archaeology as opposed to, I think he used to call it the Flatlander Archaeology or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was writing articles uh, for the Ancient American and uh, making connections and drawing drawing tie-ins. And, and the Mormons um, jumped on one of his articles because yeah, he, um, he pointed out that there, were, there was evidence that one aspect of the Book of Mormon was true. I mean, I mean, we know my dad. You know, he wasn't like praying to Moroni while he was writing it, but he was. He wrote an article in the Ancient American that was like, "Isn't it interesting that the uh, Book of Mormon said that there were domesticated horses in Peru at around this period, and according to these cave drawings, there were." Yeah. And so, you know, that's interesting. You know, like not to necessarily say. I mean, it's he's just pointing it out. You know, so. So when, uh, at one point, the uh, Peruvians, uh, who were Mormons, had, uh, there was a study that came out where somebody tested their DNA 
and uh, you know because supposedly they were the lost tribe or something, and and um, and found out that they had no connection whatsoever to Hebrew DNA, mm. and uh, so a bunch of people started resigning their their you know they, they lost their faith and they were becoming not Mormons, and so I had a friend translate that article that my dad wrote into Spanish and uh, put it up online for them to find. Well, that might encourage them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. balance it out with a little something, you know. So, But anyway, so that's there. We can allude to that. But, yeah, let's talk about, um, did you want to start with what you were talking about with the new esoterica? or Yeah. The yeah. new esotericism. That would be good. Yeah, well, this, this thought came to me, uh, like, few days ago after you know I realized we were going to get together and do this while I was here in Southern California so um, it's kind of an idea of a, of a balancing out of people's spiritual practices and I imagine that most of the people you know that are in your audience practicing uh, different forms of esoteric discipline Mm-hmm. Um, to some degree. using using like the or tree. thinking about it or just interested in it or whatever they're doing yeah yeah using the tree of life mm-hmm. you know as a as kind of a paradigm yeah or a frame of reference and uh, you know working with the, the arcana of the tarot mm-hmm. for example uh, doing various types of what I would call concentrative practices practices where a person was in control of their meditation or their prayer and they're focusing using the imagination using sound you know mantric sound using best gestures and images and so forth to activate certain energies from the deep unconscious oh, that reminds me I've got to stand a little bit too <laughs> sometimes i forget my body that's the, one of my you know points about people in the west is they ignore their bodies too much. You know, they get into their heads. My Whoa. dad especially, you know. So yeah. Case in point. But So I'm like, okay, i got to stand. Yeah, well, I, mean to cut you off. I can relate to that. Because <laughs> yeah. after I sit for a while, my body gets stiff. and Yeah, uh, yeah it's getting worse for me. I don't you know. Well, it gets worse as you get older. I'll yeah, yeah. From my own experience. Yeah. So, uh, anyway. Anyway. Getting back to this uh, topic here. Mm-hmm. There are all these concentrative practices, not only in Western esotericism or occultism, mm-hmm. but also in, in the Eastern practices, you know, Certainly. like in the Vajrayana Buddhism and the Tantric uh, meditation and so forth, where we use our, our faculties to activate energies from deep inside us that will transform us and change our consciousness and bring us more in tune with the spirit, yeah, with the universal spirit, yeah. So uh, this is really important, and this is primarily what most people are doing in their meditative practices and their prayer life, in magical you know operations, you know ceremonial things, rituals, yeah, uh, just all kinds of stuff. You know, from you know hatha yoga, which is physical to uh, pranayama, you know, the breath, working with the breath, 
do the visualizations and the repetition of mantras, the visualization of mandalas, yeah. the chakras, the energy centers, and and on and on. And there's just a great uh, cornucopia of wealth yeah. of practices that have been developed by people in different cultures and different traditions, all aiming towards this process of inner transformation and spiritual awakening. And of course... Sometimes people go off on tangents and they get they get kind of overly concerned with protector deities yeah. or uh, you know wrathful energies or evoking different types of entities and spirits from the spheres on the tree and so forth. And so my idea for a new esotericism is not anything that would replace what people are already doing or what they are attracted to mm-hmm. and what they feel is working for them and nourishes them. But it's something that will add a new depth dimension to it. Now, as we both know, the word occult means hidden, esoteric, you know, it means inner or secret. Mm-hmm. So what I'm proposing is a type of a practice which reverses what we're normally doing when we are concentrating and choosing what to do and we're in control of it. Uh, This is a practice that allows the spirit within us to become active and we become the receivers Hmm. of what the spirit is doing. We all know that the divine indwelling exists in all of us, in the deepest core of our soul. We could give this a variety of names, you know, refer to it as Christ within you or the Buddha nature or Atman, the higher self. You know, various terms are used to point towards this deeper spiritual reality, which is our true nature. And we're both human beings and spiritual beings. And using the tree of life as a as a paradigm, I would say that the, the lower triad, the personality astral triad, that represents our human ground, our human nature, where our faculties of, of intellect, which would be splend- the splendor sphere or hold and imagination, will and emotions and so forth would be uh, the victory sphere, <clears throat> also the desire nature which is called Netzach, and then the uh, the foundation sphere, Yesed, that's our sphere of memory, patterns, uh, the subconscious mind, the unconscious mind, and so forth. Those are our basic faculties, and that's kind of the level on which we go through the inner struggle, uh, the moral ethical struggle between the attraction to good and evil that is an inherent part of our human nature. Right. And then, of course, below that is the kingdom sphere of Malkuth, which is the material, physical material world, our physical body, which is our vehicle, our instrument in this incarnation, and the entire physical universe, which, as we're learning through science and so forth, seems to be pretty much limitless and expanding. So... Above that is the spiritual moral triad. That's where our spiritual nature, our higher self, is is located. 
right. particularly you know the beauty sphere, which corresponds to Christ in us or the Mahia, as they say in Hebrew, or yeah. Ben the Sun, which is you know the name for that also in Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. So that's our higher our higher self, and then we have the sphere of severity, uh, Gabura, which represents our awareness of the pairs of opposites, duality, conscience, justice, also fear, and so forth, and you know, the law of karma, the law of cause and effect. And then on the other side, on the uh, masculine pillar, is the mercy sphere, which is the sphere of love and compassion and, and you know, total harmony and goodness. And all of those, plus the higher spheres, are poured into... Yeah the higher self or the Christ so it's really super empowered with all yeah all the no, goodies. There's, there's there's so much there and I'm, I'm really glad you know it's good to give, give a good rundown for people who aren't as familiar with it um, I you know people people who are familiar with it I've heard a lot of different like that like what you what you what you're stating all sounds very lucid and very well put together my only like knee-jerk things that come come up as I'm listening to it are that the very concept of good and evil have been called into question in recent centuries um, where this this system is all rooted in earlier centuries where it wasn't questioned so mm-hmm. so so it's so things like in the practicus grade of the golden dawn it says and Lilith the queen of demons you know and, and it's just like oh well yeah the evil woman of course, you know, and nobody says, well, what about Alanis Morissette? Because we're talking about Victorian England. And so, um, so as a spiritual system that's useful in this day and age, um, basic assumptions about good and evil in Victorian England aren't necessarily going to be held in common by the practitioners today. Mm-hmm. Um, just a random example. I'm, I'm, uh, thinking of, Right at the core, there's the, 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 there's the, oh, I wish I could remember his name. It starts with an E. It's one of those Greek philosophers. The one who was pointing out Epicurus? that maybe, yeah, with the uh, morality comes from the fact that we all want to dominate and we, none of us wants to be dominated. And so if we're all going to work together, if we're all going to be in a society together, we need to agree upon a system which we'll call, for lack of a better word, uh, ethics. And, uh, and, 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 and say, this is mine not yours. If you take this, that's called stealing. Stealing is bad. We'll all punish one of us who steals. And like, so these basic assumptions are put into place so that we can all behave nicely amongst each other. And that's where good and evil comes in. And that's about as real as it is. I mean, when it comes to, and then we look at a lion and we say, is it evil for the lion to do what he does? No, it's a lion. You know, it's like, well, is it evil for the serial killer to do what he does? Yes, that's evil. And it's like, okay, I mean, we, and some, you know, you can kind of feel, well, it feels evil. Well, yeah, we watched a lot of horror movies, and when we were kids, we went, I'm evil, I'm the bad guy, I'm in, in G.I. Joe. And so, you know, we all have, we have the, these, these patterns, you know, but I don't know how useful they are, because I, I, people used to just recently think that homosexuals were evil, and people used to just recently think that Jews were evil, and, and people today think certain people are evil that are my friends. You know, Satanists, for instance. I have plenty of people who are card-carrying Satanists, you know, who are, who are friends, who I don't think are evil at all. In fact, I've met more evil Christians, you know, if I'm going to use good and evil. But, okay, so that's one level. Then the other level is I've, been, I've recently been um, personally 
I mean, because as you know, I'm ex-Golden Dawn. You know, like like my friend Gordon was ex-Scientologist. You know, so I'm I'm recovering Golden Dawn the way that a lot of people are recovering Catholics. I never was Catholic. I mean, I chose to be Catholic as part of my Golden Dawn phase. But, um, you know, I, I kind of moved away from that. But, I mean, yeah. st- on paper, I'm still Catholic. But what's my point? My point is higher self. <sighs> I like to use true self um, or truest self. Because it, it points to the right direction. I think that higher and lower, uh, I mean, really, when you look at the tree of life before Athanasius Kircher got a hold of it, the, Jesu- the German Jesuit in the 1600s who decided it should look the way it does, um, before that it was rings of a tree, and the very middle was Malkut, and the outer edge was Keter, and it was all like the rings of a tree going from inward to outward. So where's the, where's the higher self? You know, which one's higher? Well, you know, there's no up on that diagram. So it's a more recent diagram that makes the term higher self useful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and it causes people to think that we're talking about something that's quote-unquote in heaven. Psychologically, you know, people who've gone to church as kids, they think, oh, you mean in heaven? Oh, up there? And then as an atheist, we think, well, you know, up there changes every two minutes when the earth turns. You know, we're pointing in a different direction in space when we're pointing up. So what are you even yeah. talking about? So we automatically become, become disbelievers in afterlife because we've been told as children that there was a Santa Claus and that when you die, you go up there. And then we grow mm-hmm. up and we learn there is no Santa Claus and there's an outer space and the earth is turning. So we naturally become atheists, you know? Um, so, so I reject the term higher self a little bit. Um, and even though I acknowledge that it's part of the standard. I mean, I, I used to be premonstrator of a Golden Dawn Order, so I used to enforce the standard, and I used to be, people used to ask me what the standard was, and I would explain it to them, and I always had two answers. I'd say, okay, I'm going to answer as premonstrator, and then I'm going to answer as BT. But I'm no longer premonstrator, I'm just What's BT. B? What's BT? That's my name. Ben Tiferet, son of Typhoon. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, but oh, anyway, okay. um, so those are a couple, a couple thoughts. I don't know if I was going anywhere with that. Um, well, I, uh, yeah, I had a few flashes while you were <laughs> yeah, expounding go for it. Go for it. there <laughs> and, um, regarding yeah the ideas of good and evil. I mean, these mm. are very, very ancient ideas. You asked my dad about this question once in 1990, but anyway, mm. yeah, yeah, he had his answer. But what's your answer? Yeah. And then we'll go into his answer. Well, <laughs> what is good and what is evil can be defined by our cultural conditioning. But I think that there is a standard, a universal standard of these two things. And uh, I'll have to, you know, take a moment yeah. to try to explain what that is. But basically, there is there is such a thing as, as ethics and morality in terms of whether someone tells what is true or whether they are deceptive, you know, whether they lie. Right. And the, uh, you know, the... The golden rule, for example, yeah. is an illustration of that, you know, to treat others the way you would want to be treated. Right. And if you do that, then you're doing good. what is good. Yeah. But also, I believe there's a higher, there's a higher principle. I mean, obviously, it's a duality. When you have good and evil, it's one of the, the pairs of opposites. And in my understanding of the tree of life, Awareness of those pairs of opposites doesn't dawn until the soul actually reaches the uh, severity sphere of Gaborah. Hmm. 
as you'll notice, um, uh, I'm not sure if I'm getting this right or not. Oh, I have a, I have a few depictions of it. You have a few depictions of it? Yeah, and I have the one that I made. Well, the justice, the justice card. Yeah, it's between Gabora and between, Tiberius. yeah, Gabora and Tiberius. And yeah, very good. This is a very nice illustration. Thank you. <laughs> so over here in the mercy sphere, in the way I see it, when the when the individual soul is born. It's, it's born out of the universal Divine Mother, or Bina, and then it travels across the abyss, so separating the supernal triad from the spiritual moral triad, and it spends some time in the mercy sphere, which is a sphere of harmony, love, and compassion, and a sense of oneness. Everything is great. There's no conflict. There's no disturbance. Right. And then... There's a disturbance. There's with, Then it gets projected across this energy path over into the severity sphere. So this, the imprint of being in this sphere is our soul's deep memory of its former paradise, hmm. which is represented in uh, the Bible by the Garden of Eden. Right. This idyllic state of peace and harmony and innocence and love and intimacy and being loved. It's a state of ideal contentment, but it's also a state of relative ignorance and innocence as regards to what else is you know, existing in the tree, because it hasn't yeah. been there yet. So at some point it's projected across here into the severity sphere where it begins to experience the pairs of opposites. One of which is the opposition of good and evil. Now, in the story of Adam and Eve, uh, the forbidden fruit, as we all know, was the fruit that grew on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam and Eve, representing generic humanity, when they, when they chose to partake of that, it says in the scripture that their eyes were opened. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that they were physically blind before they ate it, but it means that their eyes were open, that they saw everything in a whole new perspective. Right. It was as if the forbidden fruit was like a psychoactive substance that changed their consciousness. Mm. And they became aware of their so-called nakedness. So there was a sense of shame that they didn't have when they were innocent. This is all stuff that we all learn, and that now, it's, this is it's in like the story. poison. It's like poison to the soul of, of Western civilization. So, what use can we draw from this? Well, I would, I'm trying to point that out because <laughs> we're all told, like, oh, well, you should be ashamed to be naked because everybody's ashamed to be naked. No, they're not. You know, it's just a, a Western hangout. You know, it's a learned sense of shame, definitely. Yeah. And that story of Adam and Eve, which I discuss in some detail in that book, Human like the Free the Nipple movement, is is directly tied into this biblical passage right here. It's like why why do women cover their nipples? It's because because of some twisted interpretation of these scriptures. But well, anyway, they had this according to the scripture. Mm -hmm. They had this sense of shame related to their 
their sexuality and their genitals that they right. didn't have before. They ate that uh, forbidden fruit, so yeah. they covered themselves up. They made aprons out of out of fig leaves or something, and they went and they ran and they hid in the bushes and so forth. Yeah. So they they had gone through the change of consciousness, and there's there's kind of a wounding that takes place with it when you're shamed, when innocence is shamed, wounding takes place, and that end the wounding ends our innocence. Hmm. And, I believe weren't they clothed in animal skin? Well, that. No, that came after that came they later. were expelled. Oh, okay. Um, and actually, and I think... This, this might be the animal skin. The animal, yeah, the physical body is the clothes of skin because they were existing in the subtler realms. Right. Until when they were actually kicked out of the paradise, that was when they came down into physical incarnation. And so the clothes of skin weren't hmm. animal skins, hmm. which is the popular interpretation, but they're actually the physical human body in my understanding of this. Hmm. Interesting. But uh, anyway, in this sphere, in this sphere there's like this sense of love, universal love in the mercy sphere. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about Chesed, so, the uh, yeah, blue sphere. Chesed, the blue sphere under, uh, you know, on the... On the mercy ne- side. Yeah, you know, the, mer- the pillar of mercy in the center of the pillar of mercy underneath the uh, the sphere of of wisdom, or chokmah. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> what I'm saying is that the laws of cosmic justice, which delineate the difference between good and evil, they are based on the principle of universal love right. and oneness. So, variation so, uh, from that. So, when you're when you're di- when you're going against that, then that's the definition of evil. When we don't act out of love for one another. Or for ourselves, yeah. Or for the for the creation, then we are we are starting to violate the laws of cosmic justice. They are set up in order to serve this principle of universal love. So the difference between right and wrong and good and evil is whether or not we're acting in harmony with love for one another. But and then, for the creation, like down here, we get into you know that one of the words for hot is reason. And down even further, you get into the astral plane, and you get into Malkut and all the manifestations. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to result, and my dad poetically put it in transformations, you know, that, and I'm sure we've seen plenty of examples where two people can be in total disagreement, both coming from a place of love, as far as they can tell, but interpreted mm-hmm. or with nuances or with, you know, some particular angle to it, that, I mean, maybe we can recognize, mm-hmm. like, there's a little bit of deception in it here on that angle over here and then here on that angle over there, and it results in their incompatibility. And yes. they're, they're both convinced that they're right, and they both think they're coming from a place of love. Yeah, and that's that's one of the central tragedies of the human condition. Yeah. Really, yeah. it truly is. I mean, like, for example, think of, of hatred between two groups of people, like, say, the the Jews and the Palestinians, the Israeli and the Palestinians, they're acting out of identification with their respective groups and love for their respective groups, and they're trying to do what is right, and often they feel incited to seek revenge for wrong that's been done to them, and it kind of has been going back and forth, and there doesn't seem to be any end to it. Because if you don't do this, you're dishonoring those who you're supposed to love. Right. Yeah. So it, these are like 
really rough. The love, there's a stuff. there's a legitimate love there, but there there's there's a limitation to it. It's coming out of a limited angle, as your dad was saying. Yeah. It's coming out of a, a limited angle that's like, you know, a horse's vision when it's got blinders on it. Right. Only yeah. Sees love in here, and then everything outside of that is not in the field of its love. And people get confused about, like, what... Like, for example, in the name of love, I, I've been in a position myself where, in the name of love, I've completely exhausted myself um, doing for others and neglecting myself. And, but it takes wisdom. It takes not necessarily chokmah wisdom, that lofty Hebrew thing that we don't really, you know, the definition includes that you're not supposed to know about it. Stop thinking about it, you stupid mortal. Um, <laughs> signed, Rabbi so-and-so. Uh, no, real wisdom, the kind you get from experience, um, to realize that that's not a good idea. I mean, if you're going to surrender to absolute love, and and say use me lord to 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 be a servant of your will you know and then and then and then you run around you know feeding homeless people and 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 teaching classes and and trying to make ends meet for years until you realize oh shit you know like i i think i i made the wrong i did something wrong you know like i'm hollow in the middle and now i'm a horrible mm. angry person you know like yeah. <laughs> what did i do you know and then so you have to kind of like reel it all in and reevaluate everything, and then people are like, "Oh, now he's just being selfish." The people are still doing what I, you know, I, or or some form of it sometimes. But now, now I'm coming around to trying to trying to serve again, mm -hmm. but but while taking doing it on, kind of on my own terms, and that being part of the message that I'm getting across is do it on your own terms, get the knowledge without drinking the Kool Aid, and and also <laughs> you know directly confronting like, "Oh yeah, there's that old shame that makes everybody feel shame." And it's not there until you say it's there, you know. And it's I never even thought about it until someone told me that I should feel ashamed to be naked, you know, like because of the scripture. And you know, there and, and and there's the serpent in so many different religions is such a positive thing and represents nature and unfolding and regeneration and yes. and it's it's it also represents sexual reproduction and it represents all these different things that Puritans will tell you, no, no, you should pray to the Virgin Mary to come and 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 stomp on that serpent and make it go away. The serpent is evil, mm. don't you know? The serpent is the one that gave you the tree of knowledge of good and evil and made you feel ashamed to feel naked. And it was like, no, it wasn't. It was you, <laughs> you fucking. Beard. But I acknowledge that the Puritans at the time were an evolution. They were a step forward. They were a positive revolution at the time. They were saying, we're the most powerful people in the world. We shouldn't be behaving this way. We should really reel it in and be responsible. And they were, they were at a time and place, and they were like, let's go to the new world and try to build a responsible civilization. And it's like, okay, you did your best. I thank you, ancestors, for that. But then when it kind of came down to our generation, it came down in the form of, of the, the old lady voice, you know, like trying to make you feel bad, you know, but... Well, there's a false sense of good and evil and a legitimate... So evil. many. There's that's my, that's my point. And, and much of the, the neurosis, you know, of humanity yeah. is the result of the false sense of good and evil. And the, any kind of shaming about our natural energies creates neurosis yeah and you know the repression of sexuality and that was freud's breakthrough was discovering us he said in his book civilization and its discontents that neurosis is the price 
that humanity has to pay for civilization. Oh. And neurosis meaning the suppression of our natural energies and desires. Yeah. But, you know, Freud left the spiritual realm out of his equation. Right. So he was rather pessimistic in his outlook. And, of course, observing the behavior of humans reinforced that pessimism because, you know, along comes World War One and yeah. so forth. Yeah. But, yeah, that's the... That's the perversion of good and evil, which is so rampant. Hmm. And uh, what I believe is that from this sphere, when the soul moves across mm -hmm. to the Gabura sphere, it receives the imprint of a true conscience, which is based on the principle of universal love. And it, it receives the ability to discriminate to tell the difference from one thing to another and awareness of the pairs of opposites. And these are all things it's going to need to survive when it comes down to physical incarnation. I mean, you know, if we were just one with everything and loving everything on the human level, we would be dysfunctional. Yeah. We wouldn't be able to survive. We would be dependent on someone else to to feed us and take care of us. And that's how we are as infants when we're first born. Yeah. You know, we're we're helpless and we're innocent and unless we're traumatized in various ways in the womb and out of it, there's a very positive orientation towards everything yeah. that the unknowing innocent infant has. So a lot of the story of Adam and Eve is kind of an allegory yeah. to the birth process and coming into into human life. And then, from there, the soul moves down into the center of the tree, which is the uh, beauty sphere, Tipperith. Mm -hmm. It corresponds to the Mahia, or Messiah, or the sun. Now, a lot of people get hung up on that, you know, and of the, course. Or, or the Christos, you know, or Christ. Golden Dawn tries, does its best to shortcut that by putting Osiris there, and saying, never mind about whether it's the... Uh, the Messiah that's come to bring about the revolution, or whether it's Jesus, let's just talk about Osiris. You know, as the well, Osiris the, is an equivalent to me. Yeah, yeah, he's an equivalent to Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now another thing that we're dealing with here, and this is true, like in in reading holy books, like the scriptures, the Bible, or whatever. There's always the outer interpretation, which is what you're stating quite a bit, and then mm -hmm. there's the inner allegorical interpretation where all of these things represent energies that are within the each individual soul. Right. So it's not the question of some, you know, savior coming externally that's going to transform the world, but it's the question of this presence within us, which higher self is one name for it, true self is a name for it. In fact, in Centering Prayer, it's called the true self. Uh, there's various names for it, but this is the principle, the divine principle in human nature, which is the sum of all the energies of all the higher spheres above Tipperith integrated. It's also the alchemical sphere because it has the capacity to transform all the energies in the lower spheres as well. And that's what I want to talk about. Remember, we started about this idea of the new esotericism. Mm -hmm. This is where we're heading here, uh -huh. you know. Um, Imagination is another word applied to type fear, which I like to uh, point out because some people say, is it just my imagination? I say, well, first of all, let's take the word just out. And the answer is yes. 
Yeah, it is your imagination, which is the expression of God in the material world as a human being that is you. And mm -hmm. it's the image. This is the image, the image making faculty. Also, though, this is an image making faculty, too. Hmm. On its own sphere. And, but this and more is the a, primal one. When I think of Netsack, I think of a reflection that you've gotten disoriented and you think you're the reflection. Like, like Typhirit's been looking in a mirror for too long and it thinks it's looking back at itself and it, and it starts desiring itself. Like mm -hmm. uh, Amaratsu, or I, I can never pronounce her name, the goddess in uh, Shinto in, in Japan. Do you know that story? It's a, I, I'll diverge just for a minute. Uh, it's um, basically... Uh, there's a few versions of the story, but the sun went away, so there was eternal darkness, and they were like, what happened to the sun? And she was hiding in a cave because her brother pissed her off. And uh, and so they were like, they came out and they, they put a mirror right outside the cave, and they started making all kinds of noise and saying, oh, wow, a new goddess has come, and she's even more beautiful than Amaratsu. And so Amaratsu looks outside the cave to see what, what they're talking about, and she sees her own reflection, and she becomes enraged and jealous, and she comes out, and then they block the cave, of course, with uh, with one of those Shinto arches with a rope across, yeah. and so now now we have days again. <laughs> and well, the sun goes right. Yeah, that's another beautiful analogy. <laughs> yeah, to what happens within the soul. Yeah, and I mean the whole phenomenon of falling in love. Yeah, you know, according to Carl Jung, for example, and I think he's right, involves the projection of our if we're heterosexual. Mm -hmm. of our contrasexual ideal onto another human being who has the qualities that can call forth that projection. Yeah. And then we become enamored. But what's happening is we're not really seeing that person. We're seeing a reflection of our own unconscious counterpart. Right. So it's the exact same thing. I mean, we've, we've become in love with it. Or on other conditions, I guess you could become enraged with it if it was a projection of your, the dark side of your personality. And, yeah. Or what has been called the lower. All of the above. The yeah. lower self. Yeah. But, yeah. So much of human life involves this maze of mirrors in which we're interacting with various positive and negative projections of things that are within us that we haven't integrated yet. Yeah. And the, the growth process and the healing process requires... Yeah. That we integrate all of that and withdraw the projections so we can actually see what's really out there and relate to it as it is. One thing that helped me was uh, when I realized, because I, I got brainwashed by a group <clears throat> that would say things like, since you're an initiate, that makes you special. You know, since you know better, then you have more responsibility than other people. You know, or, or like St. Paul would say, those who've heard about Christ have no excuse. If you haven't heard about Christ, you can keep on sinning, and that's fine, and you'll probably be forgiven. But once you've heard about Christ, you have no excuse. You better come to church, young man. And so it all kind of is rooted in that. What was I talking about? Um, back up. I'll have to rewind. Well, we were the, talking about projections. Projections. And need to, and with, I was saying that we need to, with ultimately, to withdraw. withdraw oh, right, right. And that, integrate our projections what, and what take was, responsibility for them rather than... yeah. Being in this, uh, I, I found it fantasy. I, I, what it, what, what it was was at the time, I, I had the mistaken belief that I personally had to integrate and reconcile all opposing and irreconcilable forces that I came in contact with 
mentally or otherwise in conversation through oh, other no. people <laughs> it, within myself oh, and that that was the ultimate goal and that 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 somehow the philosopher's stone or whatever that is was something that allows you to do that and what what was such a great relief was to realize or you know to kind of kind of like to cog on some of the noosphere stuff uh, with Tellier Desjardins, that we're actually all like brain cells in this great brain that is the human race. And yes. so when someone says, hey, I need a little bit of advice, or so, or whatever it is, they say, hey, you got a dime, you know, there's some exchange, there's some communication, what's happening right now between us and with this podcast, for instance, where this entire, these digested and partially digested and the interaction of our, of our two different perspectives is being packaged and handed over to whoever's listening so that they can download it and think about it and go, huh, and then come up with an idea, pass it on to their friend. And, mean, and that's how the whole human race and all nature, all life, and maybe even including the rocks and the stars too and, and all the swirlies and everything – uh, is is digesting uh, these yeah. great issues, and it's so it's not up to you, it's not up to me to digest the entire freaking thing. It's up to us to do our our, our part as, as best we can. And mm-hmm. you know, some some of some people can some people can lift can can bench press a little more than others, you know, mentally or, or emotionally or physically, and that's normal. But I mean, you know, it's not necessarily a competition, except for people who for for whom it is. Sometimes sometimes I try to use com- competition. You know how people use like parents will try to use it on their kids. I'll try to use it on myself and say, well, if I but it, I always end up unhappy about it. You know, because because it's not. It's not positive. It's maybe, I mean, I would call it evil if we were defining it the way that you're defining it with Chesed and Geburah. That if you say, come on, you want Tommy to win the race? Like, that's straight up evil by your definition. Like, you know, or that's, that's the, the realization of duality on the, and the turning on of uh, intentionally using of fear and, and pride and, and arrogance and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, all like cortisol and testosterone and, you know, oh. on whatever level you're looking at it yeah. um, on a kid to get to motivate them to what? To be a little stronger, to do a few more push-ups so that ultimately they'll be healthier? No, no, that's the wrong way to do it, I think. I, I mean, I, I think that there's certain kinds of karate where they emphasize kind of the spiritual aspect of it and that it's for defense only and you're all buddies afterward and you fight and fight and then you're like good friends afterward. and Like, that's real healthy. But I think a lot of the Western sports kind of stuff is rooted in... It's a warrior consciousness yeah. where... The warrior... The object is to annihilate your opponent, basically. Yeah, yeah. So that you can feel victorious. And that's just and, around because <clears throat> people are still into it. I mean, my dad pointed that out. And, and that, comes, that all comes out of the energies of the personality, astral triad, you yeah. know, the, animal, the animal soul, which is part of the foundation sphere, instinctual fight or flight, and the, you know, the drive for power and control, which comes from the mental sphere. But but it all sounds like, you know, I mean, from another point of view, it's like the great writer's room. Like you've got all, you know, a certain choir of angels in the great writer's room of the astral plane or the physical plane saying, and then we're going to have ISIS show up and they're going to start cutting off people's heads and putting it on the Internet. (laughs) You know, and it's like, oh, that'll be great. And then in season six, we'll leave with a cliffhanger. And then Trump will come in, you know, and, and, and it's like a big it's a big soap opera. My dad would call it a big soap opera. Yeah. Yeah. I've. In my recent book, The Will of Divine Love, I called it the, the drama and game of God's great adventure. Mm. You know, I, the, one of the questions in the early part of the book that I used some responses to is the question, 
assuming you know that there's a God, this ultimate, perfect, eternal, non-created reality, which is complete and whole in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could go on and on, but never... seems like a safe assumption to me. Never wrap our mind around yeah, it. Yeah, when they start saying, and his name is, that's when it starts to sound iffy. Well, it's, a, it's the ultimate mystery. Right. I mean, we can't... Our, all of our ideas of it are not it. Yeah. They're simply pointers. Little, little piece. We're little pointing piece. towards it, yeah. hopefully, yeah. and it's not away from it with our ideas of it. Yeah. But the question arises that since this wonderful thing, this reality is so complete and whole and perfect and eternal. Uh, why did it ever choose to make a creation? Because hmm. it, it's not like it needed something. Well, it's, I don't know. I think that I, I always think of that as a misappropriation or an error on the use of the definition of the word why. I mean, because what is the word why and what, do we, what does it it's mean? It's the question mark. It's the question mark. It's, it's the question mark. And that that's part of the answer to this is right. what's being proposed is there's three plausible reasons or answers to the question why well, I'm, I'm a, I mean I, I'm still not set I, I don't think the question makes sense you don't accept I think the it's question. I think it's saying what's the difference between a mouse to say like okay why did you go to the store we ran out of bread the bread was moldy I threw it out I went down to the store and now we have bread okay like that's that that that's an appropriate use of the word why why does why does why did God create the universe? Okay, mm-hmm. first of all, weren't we talking about an infinite all all oneness? The the infinite. Okay, so we're t- now we're talking about a past tense act of making. I mean, th- there's a lot of assumptions that go into the sentence even making any well, sense. Well, it's a. I would say it's it's. It's a present tense thing that's an ongoing, right? Happening. Yeah, I, I, I agree. But, with that. but we, I still don't think why. If it works. we well, if we assume why is one of the things it created. If we assume time, we would have to assume that at some point there was a beginning of the creation. I mean, science refers to it as the Big Bang, for example. But surely there was nothing thinking in English thoughts. No. no. <laughs> well. Just you know, for the sake of discussion, let me right, right. let me violate your okay, okay, okay. your sense of no, no I'm just challenging a, it. I, I'm not letting you get to the point. And just say the question: Why did God at some point choose to create? And we assume that that happened because we we find that here we are, we're part of a creation. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we may be completely off base. It could be that this is totally timeless and endless, and there never was a beginning. But just for fun, let's pretend that there there was a point at which th- this supreme reality chose to create. Three plausible answers is one, there was a curiosity. God wondered what would it be like not to be God. Hmm. You know, I know what it's like to be God because I'm that's me, God that is. Mm-hmm. So the way only way to answer that question would be for this unlimited reality to enter into a state of limitation. By making a creation. Yeah. So, I mean, this is represented, you know, by the the number zero tarot arcana of the the fool, you know, stepping off the cliff. That's God entering into creation. Hmm. There's an uncertainty. Of, well, yeah. what's what's going to happen if I do this? Because I'm giving up being God. Yeah. And I'm I'm creating. In order to create, there had to be uh, your positive and negative polarity. 
with energy flow between it to generate the creation. So that's that's like the first duality, so gravity is the curiosity. first limitation. Well, so the answer to what would it be like not to be God is happening through every one of us, every living creature in the whole creation, because God is one with all of us, and so through all of us, he's finding out all the possible ways there are yeah. not to be God, not to be that absolute, yeah. which is non-created, yeah. or the limitless light, you know, in, in, in the Kabbalah. The second answer, the second answer to the question, and this this comes from the the Eastern, you know, religions of India, was that God wanted to make a leela. He wanted to make a play, a drama, a dance. And so he created this... Maya. This Maya. He chose to create in order to have a drama, to yeah. have a play. And if you're going to have a drama and you're going to have a play, you need to have a plot. You need to have conflict. What better conflict than the conflict between That's where I disagree with evil. Robert McKee, though. Well, <laughs> I think that these are assumptions based on Greek drama. Okay, I'm sorry, go on. Well, these are, <laughs> to me, these are plausible Yeah, no, you need conflict. You need to that conflict question. to have a plot. So there's the conflict, the struggle between good and evil is the archetypal conflict. Yeah. And then the third plausible reason for this is because this divine universal principle, non-created reality, is total love, complete, unconditional, infinite, total, eternal love. The nature of love is to overflow itself. It's effusive of itself. So in order to be effusive, it wants to share itself. Yeah. And so in order to share itself, it had to have someone to share itself with. And so that's us. The purpose, the higher purpose of our creation is that we may share and partake in and ultimately involve into, evolve into the divine, well, yeah, evolve <laughs> into the divine love. Yeah. So those are the, those are the three answers. Cool. And that the way that I'm visualizing this tree is how those answers are being implemented. Yeah. So from, this is like the, the spiritual moral triad that's our spiritual nature and then this lower one the personality astral triad this is our human ground our human nature when we are born into this you know we've got the the sphere of the emotions which includes desires feelings also the imagination the envisioning of what we desire what right. we what we want Within you know the Maya primarily. Yeah. I mean this, this is a really important sphere. The will is here. Yeah. And then over here we have the splendor sphere, of intellect and intelligence, and this is a sphere in which the ego identity is conceived because it starts to reflect itself to itself as a separate self. I am. Yeah. This is the smaller I am as opposed to this. Tipperth is the greater I am. So this is the I am, and then this is our instinctual nature. The serpent in the garden represents all of our basic instinctual needs and desires and motivations. Hmm. The survival instinct, the reproductive instinct is part of that, 
the instinct for and the need for sensation and pleasure to affirm the goodness of life, the desire for affection, esteem, and approval, so we we like ourselves and feel good about ourselves, the need for power and control. Maybe so, the DNA molecule Which is our need itself. for personal freedom and independence. Yeah. But when these basic needs and the well the the affection, esteem, approval correlates to the victory sphere because that's emotional. And the uh, power and control need correlates to the splendor sphere because that's intelligence and intellect. And, you know, really power and control comes from awareness and knowledge and being able to use that knowledge to get what we want. Yeah. And then the memory sphere, that's all our instinctual memory, which we share to some degree with the lower evolved life forms, uh, inborn desires, hmm. the animal soul and the, the passions and so forth, and then the human being. So the human being down here inherits all of this, but what comes to consciousness is primarily the separate self-sense of the personality astral triad and ego identity. Uh, the question is whether it's going to live in harmony with these higher principles or go against them right. in its pursuit of happiness and fulfillment. Or even in its pursuit of permanent separate self. Like I mean that's a more Buddhist way of looking at it. Like I you know, if I if I am just you know, it's that old thing of uh, it's better to be uh, better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. That, you mm -hmm. know, if, if what does God want you to do? Oh, well, be nice to everybody. Treat everybody like an extension of yourself because really we're all one. Yay. And then so like a certain kind of created soul, maybe from this point of view, we'll look at that and go, fuck that, you know, or whatever. I don't mean, I don't know why the Southern accent, but, uh, you know, and say in the name of being the opposite of that, I'm going to go get a tattoo and you know or what from the from a from a churchgoer's no. point of view they see their kid go off and and rebel and start listening to megadeth and and get some tattoos and some earrings um all specifically to not be one of those people chanting we believe in one god the father almighty maker of heaven and earth and all things seen and unseen make you know um so i mean it, it, that's where it gets weird that's where it's that's where that's where the immediately and that's right where it's weird. That's right where where people get people get lost and phase out when when it when when you start talking about the struggle yeah. between good and evil in a context well, of Judeo-Christian symbolism. Well, there's you know? a there's a real irony, I think, yeah. in the adolescent rebellion, because the adolescent rebellion is a necessary phase, part of an identity struggle, to become your own person and not just be a product of cultural conditioning and programming that you get from from your parents and your society and so forth. Yeah. And and the the heart of a rebellion is to try to become free. Yeah. Freedom is one of the cardinal spiritual values. I mean for me that's like love, truth and freedom. Those are the cardinal the cardinal mm. values. Yeah. And so this attempt to be free becomes ironic because a lot of the ways in which people choose to rebel actually makes them into more of a slave yeah, than they were. That's true, like yeah. heroin, you know, perfect yeah. example. That's, Addiction, yeah, various types of unhealthy addictions. Yeah. Is a good the example. The heavy metal of that. was originally Burroughs talking about addiction to heroin and then they made a, a type of music out of it. But yeah, that's so I mean, the, but the, as a spiritual heavy metal, like something that 
holds you down, you know. Well, the, the adolescent identity struggle, it has a requirement that you have to separate yourself and differentiate yourself yeah. from the conditioning. Right. So with my dad being parents. who he was, I had to become Catholic. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Many times, if you look at people's life stories, there's, you'll find that they they rebelled by becoming whatever the opposite was of what their parents were. I would think that you know the guy uh, Crawley that you talk about a lot. His dad would was a be priest. A prime yeah. example. <laughs> a prime example of that. Yeah. And so yeah, people. They, because but yet they're the they same because Crowley I'm, was very much a priest. <laughs> well, yeah. they yeah they they don't realize that on the unconscious level, they've imprinted. They're doing the same thing. And they're yeah. programmed. Yeah. But they do it with outer with a different outfit, outer trappings that are different. That's why I think that's why fashion keeps changing is so that every generation can look at pictures of their of their you know forebears and say, well, I'm not like them. They look think, at those yeah, silly outfits. They can think that they're different. Yeah. But so much so much of that different is, music is a shallow illusion because what's motivating them what they're really doing is they're still trying to please their parents unconsciously yeah so freedom real freedom means getting free from all, all of, that. of that for the original programming plus the the pathological programming that is self-destructive one of the cardinal definitions of the difference between good and evil is that good says yes to life and affirms our basic goodness and integrity and brings us to authentic love, truth, and freedom. And evil says no to climate change. To life. It okay. says no to life and to creation. Yeah. It says no to affirming life. So it is essentially a path of self destruction. Yeah. Both the energies of good and evil want to return to non-created reality yeah. because that's the the state of perfection and ultimate wholeness but they they go by different routes the short quick way is the evil path to self-destruction which involves unconsciousness entering through the the gate at the bottom of the tree which is going called out the bottom the clippeth yeah the clippeth yeah the the or the abyss yeah, yeah. The abyss of annihilation, but the energy is returning, but there is no, there is no consciousness. Yeah, it's disintegration, and the other route is through the path of spiritual evolution, which means all the way back up the tree, and that can only be done by working in harmony with the laws of cosmic justice that affirm those universal values of love, truth, and freedom, not their counterfeit imitations which are, are the illusions yeah. of the Maya that and the traps you know, and the, in, the insidious thing about it is that usually the Maya and the illusions and the traps are it's almost it's, it's almost in, I mean I could see where it's like I try to avoid it's like part of me is like my dad and so I'm always trying to like keep it over here so that people don't think I'm a nut you know <laughs> but then I start to sound like him and I'm like okay I have to like I have to uh, put a qualifier in here <laughs> but uh, you know like uh, but it, it sounds it seems like sometimes that there's these demonic uh, entities kind of riding back piggybacking humanity that are looking for the next thing that's going to liberate the souls of people so that it can imitate it sell it package it and shove it up its own you know in, right. in order to in order to in order to um 
make that which is truly sacred truly profane. At which point they'll start enforcing things like, don't make things that are sacred profane, you know. But at that, at that point, it's already profane. It's too late. Yeah. You know, once, once, once it's illegal, once blasphemy is illegal, blasphemy is the law of the land. Well, I'll tell you, you've got a lot of your dad in you. <laughs> no, that's, a comp, that's, a, that's a big compliment. Oh, know? thank you, thank you. That is a compliment. <laughs> and, uh, wow. Well, let me see if I can gather my thoughts. Sorry. I, I, had a couple, I had a couple of thoughts there. That, well, the, yeah, the, the illusion is a very, very slick and convincing counterfeit of the reality. And that's what's crept into a lot of organized religion and a lot of our cultural conditioning. All but one. The Church of Assembly of God on, in Iowa. Which, which one was it? That they're the ones that are going to heaven. The rest of them are all burning in hell. No, I'm just kidding. I, mean, I don't mean to cut you off. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, they're all they're all various kinds of of off. But I mean, even with the best of intentions, you can't do it without putting a little bit of your humanity in it, or a little bit of something creeps its way in, you know. And there's like, there, but it's like a, a spectrum. You can go to one church or another and feel okay. What we call Holy Spirit, maybe, is like when. Uh, a, a lack of, you know. Okay, I, I don't. I don't mean to. Sorry to take the the reins for a second, but it's it's like when the body heals itself when you stop polluting it, when you stop making yourself sick. It, it, it the immune system is there, you know, and it naturally kicks in. So when you stop with the, you know, when someone is able to get get free of some of the the neurosis, enough of them, a critical mass of it, and to be able to be humble, truly humble enough, and admit, you know, and. and it, and then, then you, then they're a priest. You can see it. You can tell because they're up there and they're they're really sincerely doing their best for the sake of the people in the audience. And then they go home and they say, "Did I do that right? I'm gonna do better next week." And you can tell, you know. And yeah. and and even that has a little bit of deception in it. And there's gonna be deception that creeps into it. And there, you know, there's gonna be people that disagree with them. Yeah. Um, and uh, but then then there's all the other shades. You know, there's that's as good as it gets. There's many and then, shades and. That's why I was talking about that spectrum of micro-spirituality. Yeah. Maybe we could go into that a little bit totally. later. Yeah, yeah. But Because that, I think that's something that's very important. We can put that. You know, All of us are, are, are relative combinations of neurosis and health or, or, or evil and good. Yeah. You know, every human being, until we're completely liberated yeah. into the, the divine light. Well, this, this maze that we... That all of us are caught up into is so confusing that I think it's reasonable to assume that we don't have the perfect vision to find our straight and immediate way out of it. And this is coming back to this idea of the new esotericism. Right. So the idea is this, that this principle in us, which is one with us, it is aware of everything that the personality is doing, that it's going through. And it sees clearly because it is totally illumined by the higher powers of the higher sphere. So it, it knows the way out mm. better than the ego down here does. And there needs to be a kind of a working partnership between this higher principle and the personality here in human ground. Hmm. Now, the kind of a prayer or meditation that I'm proposing as a 
complement and a balance to the concentrative methods which this part of us chooses and does is a receptive kind of a practice in which out of pure trust and faith in this higher principle we allow ourselves to be the receivers of its work in mm. us so and this is basically what the method of centering prayer is about mm-hmm. when a person practices this prayer this meditation they become receptive by consenting this is the heart essence of the prayer by consenting or at least having the intention of consenting to the presence and action of the divine in the soul mm. so I am consenting to whatever word we may want to use let's say God I am presenting, consenting to God's presence and action in me what I am doing when I do that is I am giving permission to this higher principle to have its way with me, to work in me. So when we enter into this prayer, we detach ourselves from the normal flow of thoughts that are going by and allow ourselves to rest in the space between the thoughts in an attitude of consent. Now this is this is actually an entryway into the invisible sphere on the tree which is called, I call it Doth the Cloud, in reference to the cloud of unknowing. Mm -hmm. It's a sphere that cannot be conceived by the intellect. So it's beyond thought, image, word, feeling, desire. It's beyond any particular perception that we can have. The Greek term for this is apophatic, which means without images. Hmm. So that's the opposite of all the practices, all the concentrated practices we referred to before, because they are with images. Right. They use the images. So this is why it balances it out. The Greek term for that is called cataphatic. That means with images. So the one doesn't replace the other, it complements it. It adds a deeper depth dimension. So let me just quickly describe the practical method of this prayer. Okay. And because when you're doing it, it seems like you're not doing anything. And of course, because of our conditioning, we think of meditation or prayer as an activity that I am going to do. But the way this works is if you do it, it does you. Yeah. So you have to give it permission to do you. Yeah. Trusting that because your intention is to align with that divine principle in you, that what's going to happen, what's going to be activated is the positive in you, not the negative. Yeah. So, first of all, you choose a simple word of one or two syllables as a symbol of your intention to consent to the divine presence and action within. You choose any word. It can be in any language, I, when, I mean, any, just, any word just you want. Just for the sake of... Uh, of, of full transparency when I was when I was going through my process I uh, I used the phrase I am a yogi um, as my equivalent of that uh, with it with all the implications of that well that's too too many words no I'm not is. saying for them to do it I'm just saying that that's what I use 
It's because it, that in, in, includes surrender to God, that, which is the I am a yogi would fifth. be would be a good affirmation, right? Or a good active prayer sentence to repeat to yourself mentally as you go through the day. But for doing this kind of prayer of meditation, it's really a movement into the simplicity of now. So, so I, I give permission word, to the God to I give permission to something that is not me. Well, that's to what you're going to. Well, it is I you. Am, I already take for granted that there's duality, and I'm. I, it seems seems sort of S and M E to me. I well, mean, that's kind of a that you, what you're giving permission to is your own higher nature. That, again, I I, I mean that's, that says true, it's outside of you. It's not outside. It's outside of your ego personality. Right. Out of your consciousness. But it's really your true self. But we're assuming that the I, the subject in that sentence, is that ego and not the higher self that's talking. You don't say a sentence when you're doing this practice. But if you say, I give permission to God to have his way with me, then you're identifying twice with the ego and you're, you're, you're saying once that you're not God in that sentence. Well, that's, that's a horrible affirmation. You're not using that affirmation. Okay. You choose what you're going to use. but I prefer I'm a yogi. <laughs> okay, use that as your affirmation, but don't try to use it for this kind of prayer. Okay. okay. Because for this type of meditation or prayer, you want a very simple word of only one or two syllables. Mm. You could word, use the words like now, or love, or curie. It could be in you know a different language, but... Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what word you use, as long as it's not something that's going to trigger a lot of associations and thoughts. Because what we're trying to do is to step back from our thinking process mm-hmm. and be detached from it. So you choose a word, and the, the word is simply a symbol of the intention of consenting to the divine presence in action in you. And it's your true self that you're consenting to. It's not something outside of you or alien to you. I mean, I, I hate to point out, but that sounds like an error in logic to, to say it, it, that I am talking to my true self. It's well, if you look at this tree of life, if you can accept that this tree of life is a map of your soul, of the microcosm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I talk to myself, but I mean, I admit that it's crazy. Everything that is on this tree is part of you, but... Most of it, most of the time, you're not conscious of. But it is you. Right. It's not something outside of you. What we're conscious of most of the time is our ego identity as a particular human identity and personality. I mean, just to clarify, what, what, what I'm saying is true, though. If I say, I am consenting the divine to have his way within me, I, in that sentence, is the ego, the divine is the true self that mm-hmm. we don't, we're assuming we're unconscious of. Most say. of the time. So. Uh, and then the third time I say within me, I'm talking again about my ego. Right? What we're giving, what we're doing, see, we have a will in this personality astral triad. Mm-hmm. And as long as our will is to maintain the status quo of our patterns of thinking, feeling, speaking, and acting relating to others and so forth, this principle leaves us alone and allows us that freedom. Right. So when when we use our prayer word as a symbol of consent to the divine, we're giving this principle permission to work in us on the on this level 
to bring about purification, healing, and transformation. Hmm. That's all it is. It's very simple. Yeah. I to me I, if we are I, spiritual I, I don't disagree, but I also would say that another way to put that would be that if you stop hurting yourself, then the automatic function of healing will kick in. And if if it helps to like it's like at the beginning of the Golden Dawn system, and you learn later when you're an adept that everyone that was visualizing what was going on while you were going through your initiation was thinking of you as dead matter at the very beginning. And when they said, here's some water I'm going to splash on you, suddenly you came to life. And it's a whole process you go through. It's an alchemical thing. But when you, when you, when you charge a talisman, it starts off as nothing but just a piece of dead wood. And then you, cha- you charge it, and then it's a talisman. And mm-hmm. so that's the formula. And that's the assumptions behind this system, is that you're bringing in these peasants. You're bringing in these unwashed people that, you know, I mean, clearly they're, they've got it all bass backwards. And so to give them a concept like you must pray to your higher self to enter into you, for one thing, is going to remind them of church. And for another thing, is uh, an error in, 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 in logic, it's untrue, it's, that's not them, they're not their ego, the higher self they're praying to is their true self, and you don't, I mean, in the Golden Dawn, you don't reveal that until the sixth grade, but Crowley came out and said, hey, everybody, and so they've all read mm-hmm. those books, and so it's, it's like yesterday's news, and I appreciate that, um, that, that you've been working with so many people on the Christian side of, of, of the world, because they need people like us you and I to um, to be willing to do that, and uh, and I was willing to do that for a long time, and I did do that, and I've stopped. And now now that I'm openly friends with the uh, the S and M and Satanic community, I'm I'm automatically out of phase with people who insist that I mustn't do things like that, and um, mm. and uh, so I'm I'm keeping it real. You know, <laughs> I'm just well, being real. <laughs> honest, this is what I think of the Golden Dawn system. Honesty you know? is the road to freedom. You know, yeah, the truth, yeah. I'm the in process. I'm not, I'm not. I haven't arrived anywhere. I'm not. I'm not saying I'm. I'm. I'm the guru. I'm just. I'm just saying I no longer abide by these assumptions, and they imprisoned my mind for many years, and so I'm kind of reacting against them. Well, what I'm trying to present to you is aim for all of us at, at giving us more freedom. I know. Let me go a little further here. Okay. Uh, so, you choose a word of one or two syllables as a symbol mm-hmm. of the intention of consenting to the divine presence and action in the soul. And then to start the meditation, you you sit in a comfortable position with your back straight and your eyes closed. Mm-hmm. And uh, you very gently introduce your sacred symbol by repeating it in your mind to affirm your intention. And you're allowing yourself to become more aware of the immediate present moment. Then after you've affirmed that attention, you stop repeating the sacred symbol and you simply allow yourself to rest in the space between your thoughts with this inner attitude of consenting to your true self, Mm -hmm. present and active in you. And you spend like a period of about 20 minutes like that. 
Now, while you're doing this, if you notice that you've become engaged with any of your perceptions or thoughts, you renew your intention by returning to your, your sacred word. So the, the thoughts are like boats going down the river, down the stream of consciousness. They're a normal part of the prayer. Yeah. And a couple of the, the real principles in the prayer is, one, you do not judge the prayer. Because that, you know, that's a thinking thing. Hmm. You don't judge the prayer. Am I doing it right? Or this is boring? Or, oh, this piece feels good. You don't like self-reflect and comment on it. And you don't have expectations for it, of what it's supposed to be like. What you do, or what I do, what we do in practicing this, is we simply accept that whatever happens during the time we're doing the prayer is the divine will for us at the moment. So we're surrendering this time to our relationship with the divine. We cannot make our mind stop thinking. The imagination is a perpetual motion machine. But something that does happen and will happen during this prayer is that the divine presence is able, because we're consenting, it's able to come down this energy pathway into our personality astral triad. And when it does that, it has the ability to quiet our faculties of memory, intellect, and imagination. So there will be times when the mind does become really quiet and we are drawn down into this deeper absorption and our, our, we might lose awareness of our physical body at that time where we go into this quiet place of spaciousness and it's like you're, you don't know where you are but you know you're somewhere, you're conscious but you're not asleep but there's no object of consciousness. It's consciousness without an object. So there's there's no particular thing that you're conscious of. You're just in this state of, of quiet rest and absorption. Mm -hmm. And while you're in that state and you're in the attitude of consenting, this divine principle starts working as it sees it needs to do on the unconscious patterns and forces in the personality astral triad which starts to bring about the inner healing and transformation. Mm. And then after that, and you may go into this state of absorption just for a few seconds, maybe for half a minute or a minute or two, or maybe even longer. It differs at different times. It's not something that we can bring about. It's something that happens spontaneously. We just sort of fall into it. Mm. It's kind of like a gap in consciousness between the particular perceptions. So when we speak of thoughts in this prayer, thoughts is an umbrella term that includes not only our thinking processes, memory, imagination, and intellect, uh, images, feelings, and so forth, awareness of our perceptions of things that are going on in our body, mm -hmm. but also perceptions of things that are going on around us in the physical environment. All of these things are thoughts. So we simply allow whatever is there to be there as what's in the present moment. We don't try to resist or stop the thoughts. We don't react to them. And we don't engage or get involved with them. Because all of those things take us out of the meditation. Mm -hmm. And these are traps. And everybody falls into them. 
Once you notice you've fallen into it, you don't beat yourself up about it. You simply objectively return to your symbol and re resume the prayer. And you allow it. Yeah. So it's sort of like an increasing kind of self-awareness. Mm -hmm. And then, because we're consenting, the real work of this prayer, and this is the esoteric part of it, hmm. the real work of this prayer goes on in secret in the unconscious. It does not matter. If you can get this point, it makes the whole thing really easy. It doesn't matter what the conscious content of your experience is while you're doing the prayer. Because you're consenting, this principle is working in the unconscious and doing the work. And we don't see what's going on. So it's so esoteric, it's so occult and but secret that it's... We're not asking, what are we asking? We're not asking for anything. We're just saying, I consent. We are, we are consenting to, move to the will of our true self in us. That's all it is. It's a okay. movement into simplicity. Yeah. The temptation... I mean, you, you have to understand, though, that for someone who maybe, for example, many of the audience members for 20 years have been starting every morning with, you know, make all spirits subject unto me so that every spirit of the firmament and the ether, you know, identifying 100,000% with being there, what we would call higher self, walking through the day, that this is taking several steps backwards. Well, I wouldn't say backwards. It's taking a step inwards. Okay. It's taking a. I mean, the phrase, the inwards. phraseology, at least, of saying I surrender to my will to my higher self to work within You're me. You're not saying any of that. Or I, I consent. Like it's an attitude rather than it's an reject. attitude of consent and cooperation with the best that's in me, right? The true self. It's simply giving permission to the true self to do what needs to be done to heal me and help me move forward so that I can in daily life more and more become a living expression yeah. of that which I aspire to. Yeah. So it's a cooperation between the ego, the lower ego personality, human identity. It it sounds very compatible. Spiritual identity. I mean it, it sounds I mean not it sounds very compatible with and it sounds I mean I've practiced it before it's it's I, you know I, it, and it sounds very compatible with this system and it sounds very compatible with christianity um there's a, there's a lot of people that are are so allergic to christianity that this would make them not want to do i mean it it it, it, it it's too familiar well, it's too it's too much like that and then there's yeah. there's other people who aren't familiar at all with Christianity, in which case it would just be sort of odd. Well, this doesn't have to be in a Christian frame of reference, is what I'm saying. I mean, what I'm pointing out is the, is the, is the unconsciously held assumptions behind it are, and I'm pointing out what those are. We assume that there's a divine... trying to do it. We assume there's a divine principle in us. Mm -hmm. The particular name we attach to it, or the tradition or no tradition, that's a secondary matter. So the person doing this simply needs to use what they feel rings true to them. Right. If if you believe that there is a divine part of you, you can do this. If you believe that there isn't, then why would you be doing any type of esotericism? Well, I you mean, wouldn't be. I, we could break down that whole thing that you just said, and I, I could point out all the assumptions there. I uh, I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we could move on to another subject or take a break or well, something. Well, let me finish. I haven't presented all this yet. Okay. 
<clears throat> but we will move on. Okay. Uh, one thing that's a very fundamental principle is that without trust, there is no relationship. Without trust, there's no relationship. Whether it's with another person or with this divine principle. So if a person doesn't have trust and faith in the divine principle within them, there is absolutely no point in doing this. If the person is distrustful for whatever reason, then there's no point in doing this because it's just not going to work. Yeah. There has to be trust. And that's true in any relationship we have. You know what's the worst have. is when there's trust and it's betrayed, though. Well, and that's, that's a wounding yeah. that, it, that it makes it harder to trust in the Impossible. future. Yeah. When you've been burned, <clears throat> you're afraid of getting near that fire. Yeah. You're afraid to make yourself vulnerable by trusting. But without trust and vulnerability, there is no intimacy. and There is no depth and meaning in a relationship. So there's a risk and a reward dynamic. Whether it's the relationship I have with myself, which is what this is all about, or my relationship with another person, or if I'm relating to God as something outside of me, or my relationship with the cosmos, any relationship can only develop in an atmosphere of trust. Hmm. Willingness to be vulnerable, to self-disclose, to be truthful, and to share. And of course it's a two-way street. I reveal myself to the other, the other reveals herself, itself, or itself to me. And as we do that, we our relationship deepens. We know each other on a deeper level. And there's more intimacy. It requires more trust because there's more vulnerability. Because the more you've exposed the more bad it, you can get burned hmm. the more it hurts when you're betrayed the more you've trusted hmm. but the more reward there is because there's more intimacy I, I, and closeness the more fulfilling uh, and meaningful the relationship can be I'm suspect of the fact that the people who insist that this is a ladder and we're at the bottom and we gotta climb our way up to the top are the same people that are selling something and 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 I don't buy it, and I never bought it, and I I played along for a long time, and then I stopped, and uh, and 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 I I think that well, I have I have some people that want me to help them build a golden dawn temple in Africa, and they're always asking me why is it important to practice golden dawn? I'm like it's not, I mean you know it, it's it's really not you know and and. Uh, but I mean, but because our fucking missionaries came over there and and messed with you guys, then maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe you guys ought to have a Golden Dawn Temple. But it's a stepping stone, and don't lose your own spirituality. Don't oh. don't get further into this, you know. And so I'm I'm in that position where I'm like, really, you want me to teach a Golden Dawn? God damn it, you know. Like, all right, you know. And and uh, <laughs> and and but I mean, I'm teaching it like this. You know, and but they want to learn it anyway, and and uh, but I mean, it, it kind of works. Well, maybe they feel a need for a system. Yeah, they don't feel they can do it on their own. I mean, that's the well, purpose of the systems is something to help us to help ourselves. It's more so. like they feel like uh, we stole the mysteries from Egypt 
slash Africa, and now we have them on display at places like the British Museum where the Golden Dawn was created based on it, rather than them being able to do stuff with them. You know, and so it's, yeah, they want to kind of like steal it back, and I'm like, okay, um, you know, like it, here it is, shoveling it back to Africa, saying this is this is what this is what it looks like now. We fucked with it, sorry, but uh, there, you know, there's some god forms in it, you know, but it's it's mostly like just blowing itself and and putting Christianity at the heart of itself, and 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 you know, bringing in all the pagan elements of Europe and 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 assigning them different saint names, you know, and and, and but doing it in in an esoteric way, and, 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 and so that it seems. Uh, more cool. I don't know. I'm. I'm just. I'm. 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 I'm enraged. I'm sorry. Well, ba- basically, I think one of the most fundamental principles of spirituality is that everything any of us needs to know, we already have within us. Yeah. We have the divine DNA in us, the imprint, and that's what that's what this is. This uh, tipperith, this beauty, the center, the true center of the soul. It contains the master plan. We don't need to go outside of ourselves to find what we really need. Then what are we doing? Why are we here? We're wasting time. I mean, what is this then? Why are we teaching this? Why? Are, I mean, why are people listening to a podcast? They should turn it off and, and listen because to the silence so they can actually have this thing if, that we're talking about well, that we're taking away from them the same way that this does. It's because we are so caught up and confused in this Maya yeah. that... We can't do that on our own. We need something to give us some help and some guidance. I guess, yeah. And that's really that's all this method of centering prayer is. It's a very simple method through which a person can access their deeper inner self. Yeah. And if you do the method, it'll do you. But if you don't trust it, it's obviously not going to work. Well, no, the, the simplicity of, I mean... The mantra thing is the mantra thing. I mean, that's not new. I mean, we know we can. This call isn't it, the mantra yeah. thing. Picking a word and saying it and not letting your mind wander from it is a very old Indian right. method. That well, if you're, there's just a little subtlety it, when I told you about this. You choose a word as a symbol of consenting to the divine right. presence in action. In, yeah. but you don't keep repeating it like a mantra. Mm. You just repeat it a few times to affirm your intention. Then you stop repeating it. Right. And you only use it when you notice you've gotten distracted by one of the thoughts. It seems like a good method to use if someone has a tool chest of methods that they use. It seems like a bad method that someone could, in a position of guru, tell their student that they have to do every day. And that that has very scenario has been done many, many, many a time. Um that said, I mean, are there other subjects? I think we've, you know, exhausted that. You want to move on? <laughs> you want to move on from this? Well, then I disagree with consenting to my higher self to operate within me, even though I probably have and will continue to use that method. I just, you know, like rationally disagree. Like, and I think that, um, you know, there's going to be people that really feel strongly about that, and I agree with them that. Uh, this isn't useful. This is old. This is Piscean technology. This is this is stuff that needs to be improved upon. Well, I've I've found, and I know several other people have found that if you do this regularly for twenty minutes twice a day, oh, if you do anything for regularly for twenty it produces, minutes, it produces it produces 
some very good results, yeah. which you notice not necessarily during the time when you're doing this meditation, but you notice it in your daily life and interactions with other people. Yeah. It, it, it improves your quality of life. And it is the work of your own divine deep inner self within you. Yeah. So uh, it's a free choice. I mean, this isn't something you can tell somebody they have to do. It's something that is offered. The person is free to choose yes or no, to, to do it or not. Yeah. It's simply between you and your inner self. There's nobody that's going to ask you if you've been doing it. But, I mean, surely that's... Anyone who knows a little bit of English would know the, the absurdity of the statement, it's between you and your inner self. I mean, that you're talking to yourself in a mirror? Yes. You <laughs> have a relationship to yourself. How much do you trust yourself? That's kind of a question here. If a person distrusts doing this prayer, you know, well, let's turn. Let's get of rid view, of the tree of life here, and let's okay. just ask that question. So, how much do you trust yourself? Okay. And you find, if you look, that there is different parts of ourself with which we identify. Which parts do we trust more? Which parts right. do we trust less? Yeah. There are parts of us that urge us to do impulsive things that yeah. we may later regret. And we've been tempered by wisdom, you know, by there are parts harsh of us, experience. There are parts of us that may advise us to do what is in our interests, and there's parts of us that advise us to do what's yeah. not in our interests. And there's methods. Now, the method I grew up, my, you know, what they learned, what they taught us in church was, you know, you close your eyes and put your hands together. And I still do this in yoga, but, I mean, you close your eyes and you ask God, and you stay silent, and then you're open to what comes to you. And that sounds similar to what you were describing, and what, like, hence being compatible with that. But, I mean, there's a certain mechanism that's happening when you do that. It's very interesting. But I think that there's a thousand and one billion ways to, to tap in to, the, to that mechanism. And that higher self and me versus you, and there's two of us, and we're having a conversation. I mean, I just learned the other day that the Abramalin work was so that you could invoke Jiminy. I mean, like you could invoke your 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 holy guardian angel in the sense of 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 that movie, you know, that people watch on on Christmas time, where the guy shows up and said, like literally, it's a it's an it's you're supposed to have a dialogue with a, a being that's separate from you, and it's it's an angel that was assigned to you by some kind of hierarchical something rather, and it's like okay, okay. I mean, I I've been talking to beings. I mean, maybe you know. I mean, I I remember my the first time I had a guide. You know, it was named Luke, and he wore a yellow suit, and he was hilarious. But I mean, I you know I I. Uh, I don't think that that's my true self. Maybe it's an aspect of myself. It's a character oh. maybe I put out there. Uh, or maybe it's something, you know, that... It, I mean, I don't know where the Akashic Record begins and where my own experience with it ends or if there's a difference or if that dissolves when the body dies. I'm not sure. You know, I don't know if the separate self is a temporary phenomenon or or what, you know. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not... I'm not really worried about it. I used to worry about that. And part of my what, what happened for me in my meditative journey was kind of coming off of that and, and not needing a separate self. And, I mean, reading some Buddhist texts, they talk about the more you cling to a separate self, the more you're in hell. And it's like, 
isn't that true? That's very mm-hmm. true. And you could apply that in a, in a Western sense too, but like Alan Watts ran into in the 50s, when you try to like introduce Eastern wisdom in, in, in Western mind, I mean, I think he actually succeeded more than he realized. Because um, if, you, if you look at the, uh, the Episcopal Church now, they're kind of right on board with a lot of those concepts, at least from what I know. Maybe there's another side to it that I'm not aware of, but every Episcopal priest I know is like kind of like, well, that's cool that you're doing the Esoteric Nerd podcast. I'm like, really? You're a, you're a priest, you know? Like, but the one Catholic priest I know won't get back to my emails. Well, something I can tell you that's interesting regarding the Episcopals mm-hmm. is in a lot of their seminaries, they are teaching centering prayer. Yeah, and that's a whole, a whole new thing to them. But they they are very open to many different ways of developing spirituality. Yeah, beyond the more traditional, when I would say rather limited yeah. approaches yeah. that box that box people in. That you know that you've been basically complaining about that people get stuck <laughs> in yeah. and need to break out of. Yeah. Interesting. I'm feeling my sickness coming back. I don't know if it's connected to what sickness. Yeah, yeah. I've been. I, I've had um, this throat, this oh. throat illness. Oh, I'm feeling dizzy again. But dizzy. Yeah, I don't know if that's connected to uh, the conversation. But <laughs> um, no. But I mean, I I think you know. I mean, there's there's stuff there on the track, you know. But uh, what a trip. Yeah, I'm sorry to have been so confrontational about it, but yeah. I, well, you have you have a lot of sensitivities, and yeah, yeah. This uh, this practice does not come out of a lot of the things that you're very defensive against. Well, it's a practice for Episcopal priests, and like. Well, they've been they've been using it in some of their seminaries. Yeah, it's, I mean, I I I know that I know that. Um, your calling is to bring as much esotericism as they can handle to communities that most esotericists avoid. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a there's a very serious need for, yeah. and that's very a deeper spiritual self sacrificing of you, and I acknowledge that. I mean, that's beautiful. I just um, well, I was I, I was called to it. I didn't yeah, yeah. initially. I didn't want to get involved in this. Yeah, but there was a kind of a call that I received. I mean, I actually had an experience, you know, yeah. where I was lifted out of myself and energized, and this presence was there non-verbally, urging me to share centering prayer with with people up in Alaska where I was living. Yeah. And I was resistant because I knew that in order to do that, I would have to get involved with the Catholic Church again. And I, mm. I kind of dropped out of that when I was about fourteen years old because yeah. I got really kind of slow to to come along. I got really turned off to it for some of the exact you know reasons that you've mentioned and yeah. reasons why a lot of other people have left it. Yeah, and you know it has its its uh, dark and its light side. It's like every organization. Whether it's an esoteric society or a, a government or yeah. political party or a religious group, any organization is made up of people that have false selves and true selves. Right. And so it's gonna the organization's gonna have itself its own false self and its own true self. Yeah. And we know from studying history that the church has had a major false self because of all of the corruption and abuses that have occurred. 
yeah. over the centuries. Well, there's, I, I, but it's not 100% false. There, there's a, a consensus among the group mind that I came from that I disagree with, uh, which is that, you know, you can, that ultimately this whole good and evil test is real simple. If they accept Jesus, they're good, you know, and, uh, and if they reject Jesus, well, then they're evil. The, the chief adept of the order I came from said that his ex-wife, in attacking him, was attacking Jesus because it was an order of light. So therefore, she's of the devil, for instance. Like, and that made sense at the time, for some reason, for everybody that didn't leave when he said that. Um, so, uh, Muslims, obviously evil, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm not serious. I'm not serious. But like people who, you know, who look at like, you know, the, the ones that'll, that'll be real quick to be like, ah, oh, there's another Muslim killer. Oh, it's because they're Muslim, you know, and they didn't accept Jesus. And really, you know, we're still beating ourselves up for not converting those areas more thoroughly before Muhammad came around and his people got to them. There's, you know, this whole thing, like if you ask an Orthodox priest, they'll, they'll say, well, yeah, we're still kicking ourselves for not converting those areas. But, um, and then Satanism, of course, you know, I mean, that goes without saying those, those idiots over in Hollywood with the, you know, with the tattoos and the S and M and the, and the Satanism, they're surely not a part of the greater body of Christ that is going to be the ascended, uh, new Jerusalem when the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem, when God comes down, then surely they'll be smited and they'll be in the lake of fire. There's these assumptions is what right. I'm getting at. And, and I, I'm, I'm my version of, I mean, I, I have the tattoo, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Christian, you know, but my version of Christianity includes everyone. When St. Paul says we are all parts of the body of Christ and each part has a different function, that includes Satanism, you know, that includes, and that's where I differ with 99.999, put a line over it, yeah, well, I'm, of everybody I am who with you on that. as a Christian. I believe that every human being, no matter who they are or what they are, has that same divine indwelling in them. But but then, like, Real. Stephen Colbert made fun of the, you know, every, there's there's an infinite number of paths toward accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. But I don't even throw that. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not coming from that standpoint, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm coming from... Well, that's a very exoteric... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally exoteric. Yeah, yeah. Where you're thinking of Jesus Christ as an external being, an entity... Right. ...that you are to, to worship... As Rather than lived. awakening to that Christ that's within you, right. which in everybody. Well, I mean, if we and and a lot of a lot of people are left left brain oriented, and while we have their ear, you know, what what do we mean by that? So Christ, Christos, that means anointed one. That refers to when you olive oil was poured on you at the end of the inner order initiation in the rites of Eleusis, and it was sort of a weird nickname to have when you're a rabbi in Palestine, circa. Uh, 180 or whatever. Uh, other than that, though, what does it mean? Son of God. Christos? I thought it means anointed. Oh, Mejia. Oh, well, Messiah. Going, going back to the the tree of life, I guess you did. You didn't want to... <laughs> the, the word... Yeah, the, no, I mean the real meaning. Like, like the, the, the... Ben... Not the misunderstanding, but the... One of the Hebrew words for Tipperith is Ben, mm. which means... Son of Ab, which means father, which is a Hebrew word for Hokma, the wisdom. So the the Christos that's within us 
He is the one and only Son of God, which is produced by the Divine Father and the Divine Mother. And that's the true center of every individual soul. Hmm. So that is in all of us, and we are all in it. So with that, And it's through that that we are all one. Yeah. In the Christos, or in the Son of God. That doesn't mean that the Son of God is an ego identity that's separate from everybody else that we all have to bow down to. That's that's an exoteric misunder, misinterpretation, right. misunderstanding of the Christ principle. So I guess I guess in that sense, it's like the Va and the Ka, where the Ka in in the Egyptian sense is the self that. Um, continues to live after the Ba is destroyed, but then that that brings in that brings in these these afterlife assumptions and these sort of survival chakra. It's an illusionary survival chakra issue. People like someone I'm going to be interviewing in a couple of weeks. I, he's I, I've been watching his posts and and he's not the only one. But like there's a lot of people hung up on. Am I going to continue to exist as a separate soul with feet after I'm dead? And that's the ultimate question. And really, the mysteries all go back to that question in Egypt. And they had this whole elaborate system to make sure that the pharaoh would have his slippers in the afterlife and, right. and, and not get devoured by the animal thing. And the whole point is if you surrender to Osiris slash Jesus, then he'll be nice to you. And even though the old scriptures say that you should be devoured by the alligator thing, <laughs> uh, you'll get to be eternal too because God's forgiving. Therefore, pay your taxes and shut up peasants yeah. and that's that's really you know well, a lot what of, most people think of when they think yeah, of christ a lot of this is a fear of death the ego has a fear of its own death or own extinction mm -hmm. and it wants reassurances and guarantees because its survival center is is kind of traumatized by the idea of death and annihilation yeah and so so much of religion is simply trying to shore up that energy. Counteract that fear. Right? Now they just use porn and shame, you know, it's post-Puritan. Well, what I believe, I, don't, I hope this doesn't irritate <laughs> you, no, no. what I believe is this, that this, this tree of life is a universal symbol. It represents both the, the macrocosm of all creation and the microcosm of each individual soul. Now, in each human incarnation in each lifetime the human ground the human personality consists of the bottom four spheres on the tree the, the personality astral triad and the physical human body the flux capacitor and so the the sense of who we are as a human being our human identity mm -hmm. as an individual ego or separate self is tied up in the physical body and it's its identification with the outer things, like its cultural conditioning and all that, and its habits, its thoughts, and its feelings, and its desires. And so there's an awareness that we're going to die. And so there, there is kind of a fear. Now, as I think we've discussed this before, as you know, within each of these spheres is a smaller tree of life. Mm -hmm. So all of the spheres are also within each of the, the spheres. When somebody actually physically dies, their physical body is destroyed, it decays or it's cremated, mm -hmm. and the experiences of this per particular personality and lifetime, they are absorbed into this principle as a memory and as a learning experience. Mm -hmm. 
And then at some point there's going to be a new incarnation. So a new physical body will be <clears throat> born and a new configuration of the personality astral triad will take place and be connected to it. Yet in the in the deep unconscious, so the these Christ memories is who will you still... are in the bardo by that definition, basically. Yeah. In between lives, you're that 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 is you when you're in between lives. If you were to say I, which you wouldn't, because you don't have a mouth, uh, but if you were to, then you'd be saying God. You recover a memory, but but when you are you born are. as a separate self and you say I, then for practical purposes, when you're at the store and they say who's next. You say, I, you're not talking about God, you're talking about the little monkey that just raised its hand. your human identity, right. I'm next in this line. And 99, well, 100% of the time most people say I, they're referring to their separate self. Exactly, exactly. We're, well, that's what we're identified with, and that's normal and natural. When you're taught how to say you and I, you're taught that's... Your name that's is so-and-so. Right yeah, away, yeah. you're tagged with an identity yeah. as a separate human being. You're Edward. Right. I'm Kess. So how come that's the same word, I, that we use when we talk about God in the highest sense? I. Well, it's, I am. it's a term of self-reference. And so when we're identified with this self, we say I. But who's the we that gets identified with that self? Each of us gets identified with our own personal identity as a human being, but also we have this higher identity. So when we remember our true self, and we say I, and, and we say I, we're but we're, then our self-reference is to this. So like I, when Willem Dafoe was Jesus, I believe that when when a person actually dies and they come up out of their physical body. Mm-hmm. They regain a memory of this identity, and there's a sense of detachment from this. And yeah. they realize that they remember this is this is who they really are, and this is like the role and the, the identity they've had in the chapter of, of God's great drama and adventure that they've just played as an actor, as a human being. But it's only one in a series of human identities that they have had and that they're likely to have in the future. Right. So, at some point, if the soul has need for more incarnations in order to master the lessons and work through the karma it's created yeah. in human ground, then it's going to be necessary to take another human incarnation. Yeah, I... I'm, I, I um... And play the whole thing out again with a totally new human identity, born in with new parents into a new environment and so forth, which hopefully matches what the needs of this individual soul is for its learning, growth, and working out of its karma. Yeah. It might have to take a wait a long time until the right conditions come along that, that meet its needs. Once, once all these lessons have been mastered, then it's a voluntary thing rather than not to incarnate. And the only reason to do so would be for the purpose of assisting others in their evolution hmm. out of compassion. But it's necessary for us to keep reincarnating until we've learned all the lessons and passed through the whatever they are, you know, the transformations or the tests of the human experience, hmm. which is very involved. Do you think of all the possibilities? 
There's an awful lot of them. Yeah. And you couldn't possibly exhaust them all in one lifetime. I mean, that's another part of the exoteric belief system is that we only have one yeah. single life as a human being. And and if if we don't do what is required for our salvation in that one life, then... Yeah, better hurry. It's an eternal tragedy because we're never going to get another opportunity. And it's been said that the teaching of a series of lives was part of the original Christianity, but the uh, controllers took it out because they felt that people would be complacent thinking, well, if I don't make it this life, I've got more, Yeah. so I don't need to worry about it. But if you bring in the uh, the dogma that you have one and only life uh, in which your eternal future of either heaven or hell is going to be determined, then that puts you under a little more stress. Right. And of course, if you really 100% believed and bought into that, you would be very careful in how you live this life. And if you look at most exoteric Christians, though consciously they'll say they believe this, on a deeper level I think they know it's not true because they're not living their lives as though this was their one and only hmm. opportunity. Interesting. Well, think about it. So you're saying most Christians believe in reincarnation? Well, I I don't think they... I think that every soul on a deep unconscious level knows that that's true. Mm. I'm oh, not okay. saying that they believe in it, particularly on the level of their human personality. Of course they don't believe in it. They've, You know, that's that's an evil belief to them. You could be condemned On a certain level, it seems to me like... Um, like, it's fun to, like, pretend that Lord of the Rings is real, but it's easier, it's easier to, you know, to grok the, oh, I don't want to talk shit about all of Western religion. <laughs> yeah. You have too I many do. considerations about who's listening. Well, I do think about it. I don't want to confuse people or, you know, yeah, have I know, but they're going to be confused as hell listening to what I said in response to what you were saying. Well, you can edit out whatever you know, <laughs> either of us said that you that you want. No, to. no, I, 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 I just, I, I know the standard real well. I just, I don't necessarily agree with it. I, I challenge the standard, and and I mean, I when I challenged it, you just repeated yourself. I, I, I um. I wasn't sure if I was getting across to you. No, I understand the standard. I, I, I'm, I'm very well. What do you mean by the standard? Schools don't know this. The whole concept of this is the goof, this is where the body is, this is the nefesh, which is part of the ruach, this is the lesser neshama, this is the greater neshama, this is the chia, this is the yechida. Uh, you know, there's all these different divisions of the self. God's up here. We have all these different interfaces between here and God. You've got to go mm-hmm. up all these paths. You've got to confront the fucking bad guy at the end of round two. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to inspire Poetry and fiction and Tolkien-esque role-playing from now until kingdom come. But as far as a map of my soul, as far as, as, as the definition of my soul, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. That's as far mm-hmm. as I go with it. I don't believe it. You were saying this is what you believe. I, mm-hmm. I find it 
interesting. I, 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 I went through and came out the other side. I went out the top. They made me a chief, and I gave myself permission to leave and uh, mm-hmm. said, I'm done with this shit. You know, and, uh, and, 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 I, and I mean, I, maybe the audience is confused. Maybe, maybe they're going to be confused. But, I mean, so a lot of them are just learning the standard. They're like, I just started the Golden Dawn. This is all new mm-hmm. to me. And it's like, so this, this is good stuff. It's like, well, okay, you commune with your higher self. The, 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 the higher self is represented by the hierophant, the one you took the oath to when you were bound and shackled and you were kneeling in front of the altar. See, I didn't go through any of that. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, but that's, <clears throat> that's at the root of all of these assumptions. And I don't necessarily buy the assumptions. I think that it, 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 it like, I look at, I look at the, these assumptions, everything that you've said, as, 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 a, as an anthropologist who 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 is who's time traveled to this particular incarnation in order to f- fuck around here and see what's going on you know and and interact and see how everybody's doing and 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 a lot of people are hung up on this idea of some kind of upward mobility not necessarily in a yuppie sense but in a spiritual sense where ultimately it's driven by a fear of ceasing to exist and a desire to be a god or an archangel and <laughs> and ultimately and or one with god or whatever you know like to experience that great acid trip you had once not you i mean me i mean both of us i i um you know forever to get there uh the long way around the yogis maybe they know they're on the other side of the world i didn't check with them yet maybe they know you know the way to to experience the acid peak forever without having to shell out you know, yeah, you know, because eventually you take acid four days in a row, it stops working. So you know, I know, right? And so, and so you wanna, you wanna be live happily ever after forever, right? And 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 I've been there, um, and 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 you know, the Golden Dawn holds the promise of that way over here, you know, and then never delivers. And um, Paul Foster Case and and all of these systems Crowley are that are derivative of Golden Dawn. Are using all the same, the same, the same veil dance, the same, uh, the same tools of deception, the same, uh, you know. Or I mean, again, like I said, if you really are a brick, at the, you know, if you, if the neophyte coming in really is totally confused, really has nothing to go on but some fundamentalist, racist uh, parents, and grew up in a shack, then the golden dawn is for you because by the time you come out the <laughs> other side of it. You'll have a pretty good idea what's going on, but you could also you also have the option to come out the other side of it and say, "I am a soldier for Christ, and these are the end times." You can do that. You can approach it that way, um, or you can wake up, you know, or or whatever, you know, like, or you can try to fuse it with some kind of Eastern system, just out of shits and giggles, out of nothing better to do, and see if you can 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 have a new system be born out of it just by implication, or inspire other people to do it too, just by hanging a couple of kake jikus in the background behind you in a golden dawn sanctuary, like I did, or you can put on a golden mustache and go to cosplay. You know, uh, uh, I, I'm much more from like a Doctor Who kind of kind of multiverse. Uh, uh, it's all kind of like a big honeycomb, you know, and, and, and we're all one and we're all separate. It's non-dual, like the, uh, like the Easterners say. It's, it's not one and it's not two. It's, it's, uh, it's all dancing, you know, together. And uh, Buddhas alone together with other Buddhas, you know. And, and for me, that's, that speaks to me, mm-hmm. you know, is, is the Buddha lands are not red, gold, blue, or white. The Buddha lands 
are what is behind the eyes. The Buddha lands, you know, are, 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 are one single white pearl that goes on forever in all ten directions. And the great void is not called the great void because it is empty. It's because it is teeming with life and, mm -hmm. and, and, and flowers in space are, are born and die in space. These are, all, these are all things that speak to me far more, with far more depth than anything about that tree of life and Athanasius Kircher, the Jesuit in Germany, trying to secretly weed some wisdom out of the secret teachings from down in Spain, in spite of the fact that his overlords might look over his shoulder and barbecue him, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a beautiful system for breaking out of, you know, getting barbecued by the Inquisitor. But if, if, you're not, if that's not where you're at, then, then it's kind of like, step it's, it's going backwards. Would you say you've become disillusioned with the tree? No, of life? I've just come. I've, 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 I've learned it through and through. I've, I've learned its limits. I've learned mm. that it has limits. I've learned that um, that that uh, it's a very interesting flower, and some people worship that flower, and they want to eliminate all the other flowers and make that the flower that everybody learns. And, uh, I mean, on some level, they think that, well, if everybody knew the tree of life, then, then there'd be. And uh, maybe that's part of what's motivating me. Maybe that's why I'm making the Esoteric Nerd podcast is because I, I want people to learn the tree of life, but I also want them to hear what I'm saying right now. To know its limitations. Yeah, to know that it has limitations, that you can learn it, and it'll help you learn about yourself. It'll help you learn about your ancestors. It'll help you learn about your culture. It'll help you learn about the funny symbols on the back of the dollar bill. And that's it. You know, and, and then, but then you can, you can move on. It's, a, it's, not, it's not something to imprison you. And it's designed to imprison you. It's an elaborate Venus flytrap, and you end up in the middle, you know, and, and, and all this stuff is going on around you. And it's this elaborate dance, which is fun sometimes and shitty other times, and, and, and you can get stuck there. And, and, and it's not necessary. But the thing is, some, some of the people that, th that they think it's necessary, and I spent so many years on autopilot, which is now kind of universally agreed by the people that were in my same position as being mm -hmm. oath autopilot, that we took, an oath, we took a fucking serious oath to yeah. always show up to work on time every fucking day and never receive a paycheck, and we did it. And, and, and uh, that's crazy in this day and age, you know? Um, it's crazy. That's just crazy. And yeah, you're right. I do have a lot of buttons about it. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I want to point out, you know, like, like I used to tell my friend Nancy, you know, I have, it's, it's not the Nancy you're thinking of. It's the other one, the Chinese one. Um, I, I, I used to tell her, you know, I, 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 I don't understand, you know, I, I read the Tao Te Ching and I think, oh, now here's wisdom. You know, all this Western crap, you know, it just leads you into a, into a, into a dead end, you know. But, mm -hmm. but I read the Tao Te Ching and it, and it liberates me. And she's like, let me tell you about the Taoist church, you know, the Taoist temple that my father is the head of in Chinatown. And she'll tell me some stories, you know, about, about a little bit of ego going on, about a little bit of backstabbing going on, about a little bit of palm greasing going on, about a lot of stuff that's familiar from yes. Western churches. And so it's human, you know, human... It, it's like I was saying, everybody has a true self and a false self. Yeah. Every church, every organization has that. Now, true self and false self, I like that. I would say true self equals what had previously, in Victorian times, been called higher self. And mm -hmm. false self equals what had previously been called by Freud alone, ego. And, 
you know, uh, uh, but I like true self and false self. That well, those are the terms that Thomas Keating used. Well, I like Thomas Keating. I, my dad liked Thomas Keating. In the interview uh, in 1990, I just listened to it again, and he kept interrupting you, and, and you had just introduced him to Thomas Keating in, yeah. in 1990, so it's pretty cool. Well, I came, I came to the Tree of Life by the opposite route of you. Right. Because when I was around 20 or so, I had a spiritual awakening through an LSD experience, and I became totally interested in Eastern religion and Eastern philosophy. Yeah. And I just felt that this whole Western thing is not for me, and I spent the next 20-some-odd years. So you're trying to save people 20 years by letting them know that there's something cool in the West. You don't have to go to the East. You can find it in your own culture and save save people some time. So the same you're doing the same thing I'm doing. I'm I'm trying to save them time by saying skip the West. <laughs> you don't have to go there either. You know, so that's interesting. I just noticed that, yeah. that we're, we're both we're both coming from the same point of, of of trying to help others to not get lost like we did. <laughs> well, we learned. A bit. We we we, we learn through our experiences. Yeah, you know, yeah. Particularly through our our mistakes and our failures, we have an opportunity to learn from them. Hopefully, we do learn from yeah. them. Yeah. But my approach to the tree of life kind of presupposes and is grounded in my background in the Eastern stuff, which you are now finding, <laughs> at least in theory, you're finding it right. very delightful, yeah. even though when you look at the human organization, well, of course, yeah, you see that they're still tainted by the mixtures of the right. true and false It's self. easier to see the ideas in, in, and the abstraction without those associations and that's where a lot of people you know with christianity people can't hear the wisdom of oh well you were born into sin and through faith you can achieve salvation like most people who have any kind of christian background are like stop talking to me right now like ew you know and and i come i'm covering from a standpoint of like well the higher self will give you a hand and help you traverse the path of darkness into the light and i'm like ew fucking fuck off with that shit you know like like no no you're not my higher self you're a creepy old man in a suit you know mm. so i mean it's that you know and maybe someone in, in in a buddhist standpoint comes from maybe a similar someone someone soured their uh, the, the taste of buddhism for, for well the human condition has its limitations yeah I mean, it's nice for it to look and attractive to look at the ideals, but yeah. uh, the in, when it comes down to the reality of the human condition, there's always these little imperfections, flaws, and shortcomings that that pop up. Yeah. But I think most people's intentions are good. You know? Yeah, yeah. But why aren't they able to totally live those? It's because they're carrying the baggage of negative programming of the false self system that undermines and undercuts. Like Thomas Keating talks about people having mixed motivations. Yeah. Like you're doing it consciously, you think you're doing something for all the right reasons and for the higher ideas. But right under the surface. But underneath there, there's a hidden agenda where you're doing it for your false self. Yeah. So that you can get power and control or affection and And that's where there's some wisdom in in the story of Job in an abstract sense because something has to come along and test that. I'm thinking of a particular example where there was a a man who was a cult leader who 
you know, it seemed to all appearances to someone who wasn't looking too closely. Like, uh, uh, it, it was all very good, you know. And uh, But then when, when times became tough, you got to see the really ugly side of that person because they were like, okay, so... Now that now that times are tough for me, who's gonna who's gonna let me crash at their place, huh? BT, you gonna let me crash at your in your mansion, you know? And uh, and and I was like, kind of conditioned over the course of years to feel guilty about having so much, and I was in charge of the charity outings and stuff like that. And so I said, okay, you can move in with me, and that was when the whole order kind of came together to to come to my rescue, and and that was kind of the force that really ended up. Um, causing everybody to be liberated from that guy was they didn't want to see that happen. Mm. So, you know, but I was right there in the thick of it. But, yeah, you know, you find out how ugly someone is. I don't know. Yeah, well, we all have our ugly side and our pretty side. Yeah. And that's just human nature. It's not our fault. It's just our inheritance. Maybe it's the price we have to pay for human incarnation is being in the tussle between these like forces that, inside of us. That old question, like, I mean, I have this, but if I were, if I had nothing, would I be a thief? Would I be a criminal? You know, if someone handed me a gun, would I say, stick them up, give me a wallet? You know, what do you need and what do you want? I mean, those are the two variables. Yeah. What we need are ones that we don't have a choice about. Yeah. The other things we want are ones that we do have a choice about, if we don't really need them, that is. Yeah. But if we think we need them, and we don't really need them, you know, then we're, we're trapped. We're in a trap. Yeah. We become a slave to those needs that aren't really needs. I, uh, I remember my dad would always say, you don't have to, you get to. If you have to, you're enslaving yourself with your words. If you get to, then it's exciting that it's something you get to do. And I, I was listening to my own recording the other day and I was talking about how transcending you know life on earth it, you can kind of see how our spines aren't quite used to standing up straight yet we're trying we're, we've been we've been you know off of all fours for a while but we're st we still got a ways to go we're, mm -hmm. and you can see it not only in that in our in our lower spine issues that we all get if we live long enough um, but in the way we behave, in the way that civilization is. that I mean, and it's kind of like, it's almost, I mean, when you think about it too much, it, it sometimes from a certain point of view, it's depressing because it's going to be a while. I mean, you know, people like to think, oh, maybe in our lifetime, maybe the technology will save us. I don't mm. I think it's going to be a few more tens of thousands of years, actually, before we get to look like anything that we would call, okay, now humanity's cool you know <laughs> like I, I it's it's a long way off it's a growing up process yeah all of our fighting is is childish behavior yeah and we're we're still in emotional kindergarten to a high degree yeah as a species and uh we don't know the way to our better self yet I feel like people probably had this conversation in ancient Alexandria and someone wrote it down for, for posterity and then fucking Genghis Khan came and, and burned it down, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm hoping, you know, I mean, just as insofar as I try to detach from my motive to help hum humanity, but uh, insofar as I have a motive to help humanity, I hope that the Internet lasts so that this and other conversations toward 
humanity's evolution can remain in the collective uh, pool of knowledge, yeah. you know? Like, if everybody back then had had access... I mean, because when I look at... I forget her name. I wish I remembered her name, because she's a really important historical figure, and everybody should... And I'm going to go back and edit it later and say her name is... <laughs> Hypatia of Alexandria. That's H-Y-P-A-T-I-A. Born somewhere between 350 and 370 Common Era. Died in 415. And uh, she she was the librarian at Alexandria. like, Ooh. And she had said... You know, something very lucid about how fables should never be taught as history or, or fact. That, that, it's a, that, that you can't, it creates a way for people to control armies and you can't unbrainwash them because you can't, you know, and she, she was just wow. like, she was being really clear. And yeah. I mean, if everybody, if, Al, if, if Alexandria at that moment in history had had, you know, if a website had had, you know, a way for people to, like, access, access it yeah. from everywhere in the world, then surely, yeah, the, the Genghis Khan and, and the boys would probably still be chopping off heads like ISIS or whatever, but um, they'd still be looking. They'd still hear it, you know? Like, they'd st- eventually, I think it would have had a positive effect, you know? I mean, I think that part of it is our collective culture, our collective agreements, our collective religion, if you will, and, you know, and, and then it, it, that becomes a question of does religion help? I mean, anymore, you know, uh, or is it just hurting? You know, uh, there's some aspects of it that help, you know. Yeah, well, it's, I'm sure it's not all black and white, one or the other, but yeah. it's, it's a mix. Yeah. It's doing both of those things. A lot of people will, you know, put everything, you know, like, like, uh, uh, you know, the mall. It's like people will say the mall is evil, right? I mean, the mall ain't evil. The mall, yeah. It's it's <laughs> it's it's a consumerism church. It's a it, and it's the one everybody goes to. Well, if you think that's God, then you know you're you're in the dark, and yeah. the results for you will yeah. be evil. But it's not the mall's fault, right? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, from a cynical point of view, at least you know you go you go into a church and you give them some money and you get a bunch of hot air. You go into a mall, you give them some money, at least you walk out with something. You know? Something you can use. Yeah. Or play with. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to show you some of this stuff that I brought. Cool. That you might find of interest. First is this. This, they did a feature on me on my prison ministry. Oh, nice. Freedom yeah. Awakens. Kess brings hope behind prison walls. Yeah. This is the Christmas 2015 issue of Alaska Catholic. And, uh... Archdiocese of Anchorage dot com, diocese of Fairbanks dot org. Cool. Yeah. So they did a little. Out of my, out of the corner of my eye, you look a little bit like David Bowie in this picture. I don't know. Like, <laughs> when I was reading this, I thought I was like, "Oh wait, that's you." That's yeah, that's me. Let's Taking see. right on my porch there last November. Yeah, I mean, I I appreciate Catholicism. I appreciate the whole system. You know, the only thing is, it's it's so incompatible with 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 other things that don't look enough like it i mean you know when as far as when you get down to brass tacks like i tried to join and i think what happened Mm. was the guy who who brought me in like he thinks that he's in a role of priest and parishioner with me now and so um 
he can't relate to me as anything but a sheep that has gone astray. And, and I'm, I'm trying to relate as a human being who is a fellow, uh, you know, worker toward an ecumenical, uh, you know, network. And, and I'm, you know, I mean, I, I've, been, I've been testing his limits for years and years and years. Like, you know, he would raise money to help the Greek uh, Orthodox uh, campground that got, uh, you know, there was a landslide. And so I'd say, can we raise money to help the Gnostic church down in Hollywood that burned down last week? And he would just ignore me, you know? <laughs> and so I've been like that for years, you know, like, like, um, how uh, can we, can we, can we extend the, the boundaries of what you consider acceptable a little further? But he has people he reports to is the problem and he can't go outside. He has to follow their orders. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these are a couple of flyers. But I honestly, I don't think he's checking with them. I think he's <laughs> just sort of ignoring me, and I think it's, it's sort of fear-motivated, and I think he's listening right now, so that's why I'm saying this. But anyway. These are flyers. This is the talk I gave last year, and then underneath it is the one I was involved in just recently in Dallas. Centering Prayer and World Transformation. Yeah. Cool. It has one of these Jerusalem labyrinths where the people who couldn't afford to uh, to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem or who were too handicapped or too old would crawl around the labyrinth, and when they found the middle, then that would be their their Jerusalem. All right. That's the origin of that, anyway. This this one in Texas, I'm sure nobody's actually used it for that It's purpose. pretty big. It's a big labyrinth. Maybe they have. Well, they, they call it something else now. I'm sure they're like, this is where you find your inner your relationship with... It's the it's the finding your it's a way to your center. It's yeah, a path to your center. You know um, that reminds me. Uh, uh, Gordon was on his way. My, my one of my mentors was on his way to Jerusalem, and he got sidetracked in uh, Tangiers, and then he ended up running a drug ring in in Paris and Spain. But I mean, it seems oh, like all good stories start with a pilgrimage to Jerusalem that goes awry. <laughs> uh, um, Christian Rosengruss, him, him and Frater Pal. Uh, left Germany to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they got and his mentor died, and he got sidetracked, and he was in Syria. Then he went to Fez, and he went to all the way across, and uh, and I, you know, he never did make it to Jerusalem, and neither did Gordon. It's, it's just funny how hmm. the 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 pilgrimage to Jerusalem is such a good uh, device for the journey. And so, yeah, this is the more recent one I just did. Along with with uh, Bill Sheehan, it's a really nice. Dimensions game. of the human condition. In two thousand one, I was gonna. Um, I mean, my whole plan was, and I had the papers and everything. I was gonna move to uh, Israel, and I was gonna move to <laughs> Jerusalem and build a Golden Dawn Temple there. Gosh, I know it was insane. Yeah, well, they've they've made uh, like vi- they videoed both of these things. And there's, nice. There's a DVD of the first one, and I'm. Sure, there will be the second one. Then this is something I've been working on in response to some criticisms against centering prayer oh. from a, a fundamentalist Catholic woman down oh. in San Diego. So you're getting it from both sides. I'm over That's here. That's right. You know, on, <laughs> they're over there. You know, from the, both sides. <laughs> that we may. I, I I can totally relate with that. I mean, being not only go- traditional Golden Dawn, but in the one traditional Golden Dawn order that professed to be the most Christian one, it was you know it's like, what Christian is gonna is gonna look at me seriously when I say, oh well, I'm the most Christian kind of occultist, 
And what occultist is going to take me seriously when I say that? You know? And so it's a very, very narrow niche to, to try to be in. But anyway. Um, yeah, I've been in consultation with Thomas Keating. This is what this. the same stuff that Johannes Trithemius was going through um, when the, the Catholic Church was uh, accusing him of black magic when he was teaching what he called the magic of Christ, the mm. magic of the love of Christ. Um, to to Henry Agrippa, and then Henry Agrippa was turning around and writing those books, the mm-hmm. the four treaties on occult philosophy, and he was also teaching uh, Paracelsus and uh, oh. and Robert Flood and a few other people. He's a very interesting character. Yeah. Well, so, uh, this... what was their what were they complaining about? Well, that it's totally against the Catholic Church and that it's non-Christian, that it's New Age. Oh. Uh, that Thomas Keating is teaching the oh. Hindu concept of Atman is Brahman and Brahman is Atman. That Thomas oh, Keating denies the existence of hell, the eternal punishment You're going through what everybody. Alan Watts was going through with the Episcopals in the 1950s. That, You're going through exactly that. Have you read all of his books from that period? No. I highly recommend... Uh, there's something about the spirit. He he was talking about how if the if the if the Christian Church were to actually be what it says it is, it would be the most enraptured party. It would be the most Dionysian experience you could possibly. I mean, the fact that you're all coming together as a community and that community is the bride of God and God is coming down and you're gonna make love. You know, like it's. it's so good why do you have to spoil it and you know like and then but he was talking about his experience of when being taken taken aside as an 11 year old and being told that if he masturbates he's going to go to hell you know like it's just it's so the opposite it's like what we were talking about before of like these quote-unquote evil forces coming in and trying to co-opt things something that's very useful and good Oh, and in my dad's interview, he had defined evil um, using the definition from Scott Peck, uh, People of the Lie, that it's uh, to do harm or to take away life or aliveness from, uh, from another without a need for sustenance. You know, I mean, like, he was kind of making an exception for when you need to eat, you know, like, or, or like just the natural life-taking that we do on a daily basis but when you go out like hunting for sport basically uh you know intentionally hurting or, or yeah, being harming. cruel being yeah. cruel and malicious not for as an end in itself not yeah. as a means to something yeah. that you really need now that's and, where snm gets to be kind of interesting and weird i mean it, it, as i mean you can kind of see it as a psychological band-aid for for if someone is in a in a it, operating in a society where there's all kinds of of sadomasochism already, and then you want to go in and, and have a. I mean, I know you're not involved in sadomasochism already, but this is there, there's an episode. If you if you dial back a few episodes, there's so we had a whole conversation. I had a, a the guy that is in charge of a lot of S and M community and mm. talking about. He's a good friend of mine. But anyway, um, what was I talking about? Uh, anyway, yeah. Another thing that that uh, that was that we may be one. This is the response to. Well, it's a, this is a response for people who practice and teach centering prayer. Cool. What I'm working on now will be like a more public response. Oh, cool! For the general public. Yeah. 
I just, I mean, I think that there's plenty of material to draw from there. But, of course, he would be another, like Thomas Keating, person that if you quote, they'll just say, oh, well, he's just quoting that guy who ended up becoming a bohemian Buddhist drug addict, alcoholic, you know, like, uh, it's, you know, they don't, I, I love Alan Watts, but it's, it's hard to get through to these people that insist that it has to be old-time religion, you know. Well, yeah, they're pretty closed off. Yeah. And I don't think there's much hope of reaching them. But but maybe their kids or their parishioners we can we can get through. I mean, they probably the ones that are already fed up, you know, the uh the dissenters, the uh, mm-hmm. Well, one of the things also that you mentioned non-duality. Yeah. Earlier that this critic condemns Thomas Keating for using the phrase prayer for well, oh, she says that non-duality is completely contrary to the catechism of the Catholic Church. Which is Zoroastrian. And, and the practice of Christianity. Right. So, uh, I'm having to do some yeah. writing about what that, what is non-duality. Because uh. it's become a very much used term, kind of a fashionable term. And, uh, I like what you said, it's not one and it's not two. Well, Suzuki put it well. He was talking about sitting in lotus position, how your legs become not one and not two. Mm-hmm. That if your left is on the right and your right is on the left and, like, you know, that kind of thing. And But he was talking about that as when you get into meditation, it's not just your legs that are like that. It's your mind and body. It's you and the world. It's past, present, and future. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's all non-dual. It's not two and it's not one. Mm-hmm. It's... Um, well, her misinterpretation of non-duality is monistic, meaning well, I guess it's one. <laughs> that that it's 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 a kind of a one. It's there was a horror movie that came out when I was a kid called The Blob. <laughs> Did you ever hear of that? Yeah, I, I I think I subconsciously used part of that in some of my poetry. yeah. The Blob was like this big thing, like a big piece of jelly. Yeah, and it was absorbing everyone and everything into itself. Basically, it was going to eat the world if they couldn't stop it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of her idea of non-duality. It's like this amorphous one that destroys the uniqueness and individuality of everything and just absorbs everything into it. It's a featureless unity, which is the opposite of duality, but it's a dualistic interpretation of non-duality, totally inaccurate. Yeah. I I had an experience uh, one time that I, uh, I, I used the phrase, the gooey bubble of graven images Hmm. but it's like the blob but uh my dad had uh in transformations called talked about stereotypes and then said some call them graven images and uh you know uh the uh what was what was the con Uh, yeah it was the uh from the silence a word came but it was all words and uh, and it destroyed the gooey bubble of graven images. Oh, but ultimately, the gooey bubble of graven images was made up of ancient words. You know, it was made up of words that have just that all came from that same source. It once had life. Yeah, mm-hmm. and but but they are all kind of. And I and I called it muttering and complaining about itself. <laughs> That's know? a very nice phrase, gooey. Bubble of graven images. Yeah, like like, a, like an urban environment with a lot of chewing gum under your shoe. You know, <laughs> like I don't know something like that. 
Yeah, well, also there was that experience, you know, of initiation that I, I wrote about. And I brought the, I brought a, you know, a few of my books here: the Human Ground, Spiritual Ground. Oh yeah. The One Who Loves Us. The first chapter on that is called "What Is Spirituality?" Because mm-hmm. you were wondering about, you know, the spirituality. You were saying it's become somewhat a meaningless term. Well, I mean, I, 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 I still maintain that. Um, I mean. You, you could get into the meaning of the word spirit, the older meaning of the word spirit, the meaning of spirit in different ancient languages. Mm-hmm. But then the way that people, what people mean when they say spirituality now is that they kneel down in front of a little crystal pyramid instead of going to church. And I don't think that that's a very good definition. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the old definition, breath or life energy, is good. But when people like tense their, their perineum and their hair stands up on end... That's spirit. That's what we're talking about. And that's the force that moves through the universe. That's the fi- hidden fire that, that, that echoes through the depths of the universe. And it's, the, it's, 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 it's God. It's yeah. you. And, and, and um, it's also nature. And, it, and there's nothing separating it from nature. And I think when Christianity and Judeo-Christianity comes along and insists that it's something separate from nature, then I get offended because they're, they're talking about me. They're talking about my wife they're talking about my earth they're talking about my house and uh then they're miss they're they're putting it all in some kind of porno magazine and even that is sacred and and uh and and then and then calling all of that profane and then saying this other thing over here called spirit is sacred and i think that that's all just a shame that's dualism dualism. yeah again division it's dividing Dividing things. And so spirituality. Them. Then I. Then it's like. Well, they, where's the duality come in, or the ality, or the itty? Like, as, as opposed to what? I mean, as opposed to non-spirit. I mean, what's the opposite of spirituality? Consumerism. Then, well, I thought being being a producer is the opposite of consumerism. You know, it's like, well, where? What is it? Where? Where, where is it? Is going to the Target and buying something made of plastic with a with a credit card is that spiritual? <laughs> I think so. It's just dis- in disguise. Yeah, well, there's a lot of different ideas people have of it. Yeah. And that's the reason I wrote that chapter, because I felt it's a term that needed to be honored and clarified. Yeah. And one of the parts of that is this idea of the spectrum of micro-spirituality and then the macro-spirituality of non-created reality being the original ultimate spirituality which we could refer to as divine love or you know again true love truth and freedom mm. something that uh, is really transcending creation but yet embracing and inc- including it maybe a b flat microwave radiation behind everything <laughs> <laughs> maybe i want to see if i can find this uh diagram yeah here it is it's a good, this is in the newer book the the Will of Divine Love, which is kind of a continuation of the prior book. But there's this diagram I came up with. We can't, I guess we can't show it. Oh, I think I went past it. Yeah, here it is. Um, before I show you that, though, a couple other aspects of spirituality that one definition of spirituality is has to do with 
how attuned we are with that macro spirituality and to what degree that macro spirituality expresses through us mm. as human beings. Yeah. That's another concept which is related to the micro spirituality spectrum has to do with the spirit in which we act. That has to do with our inner attitude, what's motivating us. So there are many different spirits in which we can act. Yeah. With the essential uh, emotion that is motivating us. Yeah. So there you've got the spectrum. Right. It could be any any emotion. So they're all different forms of spirituality. Going from the dark to the light side of the spectrum. So here here's the diagram. Well, maybe I should try to move closer to you so we can look at it at the same time. But um, glad that you can edit this. I'm glad you can edit whatever's being recorded, but this is the diagram. So we can start out here where you've got the all-embracing, non-dual macro-spirituality of the divine consciousness. And that it includes everything else. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and then from that, in this upper triad, you have the will of divine love, and then the laws of cosmic justice. And then coming down here, you have the individual souls with free will choices based upon our <clears throat> attractions to the principles of good or evil. And then underneath this, you have the micro-spirituality spectrum, which goes from dark to light. And in the middle, you've got all the mixed motivations, which is where most of, most of us are most of the time. Right. In other words, we're not purely dark or purely in the light. But out of the dark side, it's what's called the root of false perspective, which is the attraction to the negativity of evil and self-destruction. And then under the light side, the root of true perspective, which is our attraction to good. And the idea of the roots of perspective, the root of false perspective is what gives rise to all the delusions and illusions that we have, all our ignorances and misunderstandings. And when we take those to be true representations of reality, we act blindly and basically create misery right. for ourselves. And then the root of truth perspective sees things as it is according to the truth of reality. So it sees both the dark and the light sides and the middle part of the spectrum, but sees them as they actually are, objectively. Hmm. It's not, in other words, it's not delusional. And then, between these, we have the conflict and drama of human life, where we're caught up in choosing between these and acting. And then there's like these three walls. This is another part of the meditation thing, where you have like the wall of thoughts, mm -hmm. which is the, the most surface, superficial wall. Yeah. The wall of thoughts includes all the appearances that we perceive around us and inside of us. Mm -hmm. Underlying the wall of thoughts is the wall of energy. 
So the thoughts arise out of the energy, and they take you know all the different forms. So that would be like your level of the, the prana or the rauch, or the right. noima, the you know the basic primal energy, and then underneath that is the wall of silence, mm-hmm. which should also correlate to doth the cloud on the tree or the state of non-conceptual contemplative prayer that centering prayer is kind of an entry into. So this deeper silence that transcends thoughts and energy and it's just sheer non-dual spaciousness and and silence. Mm -hmm. And then underneath that we come into the non-dual consciousness of the individual soul in its true center which links directly to the all-embracing macro-spirituality of the Divine Consciousness. So, through this, the Divine Consciousness manifests into us and into created reality through us. Hmm. It makes me think of uh, precipitation, the water cycle, that that a, a drop of water, you know, becomes a cloud and then uh, rains back down and then mm-hmm. that, that's what happens when it hits the, the water is when the uh, what was it what's written at the bottom the non-dual consciousness in the individual soul's true center and then underneath and then that, that, says that connects right back to spiritual, the all-encompassing non-dual this is a diagram of spiritual psychology and God's great adventure right and that's all predicated upon things that are earlier in the book. But the point where the non-dual consciousness in individual soul's true center hits the all-embracing non-dual macro-spirituality... Yeah, they're, they're the same. Is where the, yeah, that's right, where the drop of water hits the ocean. Mm-hmm. Or it's revealed that the drop of water is the ocean, which since we're talking yes. about oceans and water, we're back, basically ocean bags. We're, we've, we've got... And not, ocean com- bags. Complete with yes. four trillion different kinds of species of, of critters living in us that yes. are each operating autonomously and have their own separate DNA. That, and they all have a community that they... And, you know, every decision we make... Well, when I decide to sit here and, and drink coffee and, and screw up my body instead of taking vitamin C and making lunch, for instance, I'm, I'm, that, that decision's affecting all these uh, this entire ocean of activity, and then it complains back at me, and I go, fucking body, you know, but I mean, you know, that's all spiritual, isn't it? I mean, that's Neil deGrasse Tyson's spirituality. That's yeah, like well, ultimately, where, everything is... We're the cosmos. The cosmos is the ocean. The ocean's just a smaller microcosm of the cosmos that we can almost wrap our mind around, but we can't even wrap our mind around the ocean because it's so huge. How much less can we wrap our mind around the cosmos, you know? Well, one of my, <laughs> one of my favorite notions of what we now today's call non-duality came from uh, an article written by my teacher, Lama Govinda, Mm. Well, this was written now. By, was that Brad Pitt in Seven Years in Tibet? He, well, it was but basically. That's, that, that, that's that's who who he was portraying. He wasn't portraying Lama Govinda. Oh, oh, no. but that was basically the same story. He was portraying but, a, but it wasn't a, an Austrian Oscar. mountain climber. Oh, oh, okay. Who went to compete in the Olympics? No, oh, oh, stars. I guess I haven't seen the movie. What? So, so Lama Govinda. Lama, he went, Lama Govinda was German. And he went to Tibet back in the day. Yeah, back in the forties. Well, that's all. I just wanted to mention that oh, sorry. I got this idea. He would have met Brad Pitt. I, <laughs> Never mind. He might have known the person that Brad Pitt portrays in that right. movie, Seven Years in Tibet. Yeah. Heinrich Heimler or something was his name. But, oh, okay. 
That is very much an aside. Uh, I just I want to credit Lama Govinda with this idea. The reason I'm mentioning him okay. was an article. I was part of his Arya Maitreya Mandala organization, and he was the you know the leader of it. Okay. And we got these newsletters every month, and there was this one called the Significance of Meditation in Buddhism. And in it, he he was. He was saying, well, often we're captured by crude similes like the idea that the, the drop slips into the tiny ocean. Whereas it would be more accurate to say that the ocean slips into the shining drop. Mm. In other words, we attract the entire cosmos into our microcosmic soul. Yeah. And we become one with it. Yeah. That way. Yeah. And that's kind of what this is intended to to suggest. Right. And that's the non-duality that doesn't destroy our our individuality and our yeah. uniqueness. Yeah. But it doesn't limit it, us to that either. It, it includes us to everything. Yeah. So it's both. I, I love that because, because to, to me, that is devoid of anything that resembles fear of ceasing to exist and desire to live forever. It, it, it's, it's the simple acknowledgement that that which is going on right now is us, and isn't that wild? Yes. And that's it. There's no why. It's just that's it. That's it. That's yeah, yeah, I mean, because as soon as you said. say why, and then someone says to learn lessons, then I'm thinking of fucking school, you know? And then it's depressing, and then I'm slitting my wrists, you know? So, so I mean, you know, if we just stick with... That's why I like the Tao, you know, because it's like, he who speaks does not know, he who speaks, he who knows does not speak. Mm -hmm. And then I just close the book right there, you know, and say, oh, well, well I should I'll, stop I'll, listening to you. I want to I <laughs> share, share something with you. Okay. I went to a talk by Alan Watts. Mm -hmm. On his houseboat? Um, no, it wasn't on, I did go on his houseboat to see mm -hmm. Lama Govinda, and he was there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had kind of an encounter with him, but... Uh, he was talking about Lama Govinda. Mm. I think it was him. Either it was Lama Govinda was talking about Alan Watts. But this is what was happening. <laughs> See, Alan Watts had Lama Govinda as a guest on his houseboat. He welcomed him and his wife mm -hmm. to the West and gave them a place to stay when they visited here. So they were tight buddies. Right. And Lama Govinda was fluent in seven languages. Wow. English being one of them, German. He was born as a yeah, German. my grandpa was one of those. But yeah. So, anyway, they were having a conversation, and Alan Watts posed a question to Lama Govinda. He said, if you could change the world in any way that you wanted it to be changed, if you were like, you know, God, and you had carte blanche, and you could... You know, there's problems in the world and all that. You could fix it all. You could change the world into anything you wanted it to be. What would you do? And Lama Govinda said, nothing. I'd leave it just the way it is. Hmm. And then people say, wouldn't you kill Hitler? Wouldn't you stop the pain and suffering? Wouldn't you make so people aren't... That's oh, where, yeah, it's all kinds of accused of being cold-hearted. Yeah. Like, like in the Bhagavad Gita, it says that the truly wise does not mourn because he looks around and he sees Krishna in everybody's heart and Krishna's on his journey. And, uh, you know, he's sometimes he's suffering, sometimes he's not. 
and don't let it bother you. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then on the other hand, Mother Teresa looked around and saw Jesus everywhere. And he was suffering. So she was like, do you need some water? And then she spent the rest of her life doing that. So yeah. if there's a right and wrong, and that's a duality, um, which one's right? You know. Of course, uh, the people that have tuned in because they saw your name on the bill will say, well, Mother Teresa was right. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was, for, uh, she was obvious being, reasons. For nudge, she, nudge, wink, wink, we all know who the good guys are reasons. Well, she was being true to her heart. She was. And her calling. And the author of the Bhagavad Gita was writing 5,000 years earlier, for one thing. Or however many thousand years earlier. Yeah. He hadn't seen what happens when you establish Pakistan and millions of people end up in Calcutta. The, the author of the Bhagavad Gita could not have predicted what Mother Teresa was seeing with her eyes. <laughs> Something about Mother Teresa that's very interesting that not all people, not many really, are aware of. Well, I could tell you two things. But one is that, uh, and this is written in her biography, be thou my light. When she was a young nun, and she was first in India, and she was having these ecstatic experiences of Christ and his love. And uh, not unlike the things that Teresa of Avila experienced. And at one point, she asked Jesus, she made a request to Jesus, and she, you know, it's to the effect that, well, I, I know how wonderful you are. I know what your love is. I'm so full and, you know, satisfied. This is heaven. But I want to be one with you in your suffering on the cross. Let me be in solidarity with you in your darkest hour. I want to experience what you experience. She asked for that. And then it was given to her. And she spent the rest of her life feeling alienated and cut off from God. And the only time that she fell close to Christ was when she saw Christ in the suffering people she was ministering to. But yet, while she was in that state, people around her felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. They felt grace around her. There's a man that I know named David Fernet, who's part of the Centering Prayer Movement, and he was invited to go to a visitation with her when she went to the United Nations when she was in New York City I think it was sometime in the early 90s and there was this small you know audience of people Mm -hmm. that she spoke to and then they they got to go up and kind of shake her hand or get her her darshan you know her blessing and he said the whole time he just felt all this peace and love radiating from her But according to what was written in this book, while she was feeling separate and alienated from Christ, people around her were feeling the grace. So it was kind of a real split between what was going on in her inner consciousness and the energy that people felt on her. That's interesting. But the reason I told him after he had shared this that that was what she had asked for. That's why she was experiencing it that way. Because she told the people that she didn't feel she was in Christ's presence. She felt completely separated from God. But then when she was helping people, then 
and then she that was the only time she felt it. In, so you can uh, see how motivated out of not only of compassion she was. In the uh, the Golden Dawn uh, Eucharist, well, I, I found it in uh, the Requiem. It makes a lot of sense in the Requiem, but it's very interesting. It's just basically the definition of the soul in the Golden Dawn is Osiris, you know, the resurrected one. And Osiris has basically five parts. One is this undefinable spirit, which, you know, I debate about whether or not we're actually talking about something, or if there's even anything to debate about. Um, but really, it's these four elements. And the four elements are, you know, the starts with the red rose, which refers to the, the sigh of Osiris's suffering. And kind of, very kind of overtly refers to the rose cross. Yeah, that's the red what I thought of the, the rose of the, the cross. cross. Which, of course, the cross of suffering. The and the, and the, the four elements make a cross. So it's like, yeah, uh, Osiris. Y- yeah, right. So you this know, was okay. before the time of Jesus, obviously, in ancient no, Egypt. No, this is Golden Dawn. Well, this, this, is, wasn't this is very of, retroactive. Well, this wasn't part of the Egyptian tradition, actually. No. Oh. No, this is Rosicrucians um, making a new revised version of Rosicrucianism based on what Budge was translating from the new excavations and based on personal communion with what they were digging up at the, the time. Egyptian Book of the Dead. Yeah, too. yeah. And, uh, and, and grafting it onto the system they already had. And then there was this chicken scratch called the Cipher Manuscripts. And that was actually written in a certain cipher that they used a, a book of Johannes Trithemius, who I made reference to earlier as Henry Agrippa's teacher, called the Polygraphia to translate. So either it was written by Johannes Trithemius, someone in his lineage, or by someone who knew the script and insisted mm. upon writing it in it so that someone would have to use the Polygraphia to translate it back into Roman letters and figure out what the <laughs> hell it was saying. One of those three options. Um, and that's, and th- that's, you know, the entire script of the Neophyte of the Golden Dawn, the entire script of the Zelator, Theoricus, Practicus, and Philosophus grades of mm. the Golden Dawn. The entire order was based on these notes. No one knows who wrote the notes. And, uh, and so that's kind of the mystery element of Golden Dawn. Oh. To this day, it's still mysterious. It was Fraulein Sprengel, who, uh, whoever that is, it sounds like this name is made up. Who, who, who passed it along. But, I mean, people speculate it was made up by Westcott, you know, or, or you know, say, there's all kinds of speculation. People debate about it, you know. But, um, so, I mean, it's, it helps to have an element of mystery in your mystery school. I mean, everybody's knocking Hubbard because they, it's just some idiot that was making up sci-fi. But if he had an element of mystery to it, if he had like, well, I got this all from somewhere, then, then they'd be able to say, well, no, he got it from somewhere, you know. But they, <laughs> they don't even bother to say that. They just say, well, this is what L. Ron Hubbard said. Um, anyway, what was I talking about? Shit, I got too far afield. Uh, well, I, before you started talking, I sorry. had just finished talking about <laughs> Mother Teresa. And, right. And, you know, the duality. Yeah, the suffering. Her okay, okay, so suffering. So in the Golden Dawn, you're dressed in red, and you say, everybody commune with me with the sacred element of air, which is the suffering of the smell of a rose. And, you know, it has thorns, and everybody's thinking of the crucifixion. So, you know, it's very, it's very, uh, it's very compatible with Christianity. The other three are the uh, red lamp, which means the will, 
of the divine, the, the fire which flashes through the hidden depths of the universe I was making reference to earlier as being what they call spirit, but in that case it would be fire instead of air, but then, sometimes it goes back mm-hmm. and forth, because air catches on fire, you know, so but uh, well, then fire needs oxygen yeah, yeah, and then the other two are the, are the familiar ones, the red wine for the blood pouring forth from the heart, from my heart sacrificed unto regeneration and unto the newer life, again everybody's thinking of the crucifixion, mm-hmm. and then the bread, which is uh, this, the, the symbol of sacred earth which I destroy in order that it may be renewed, and everybody's thinking of the crucifixion. So, mm. so they've got they've got the four elements of paganism co-opted into Christianity right at the very beginning of the Golden Dawn system, um, but in the name of being Egyptian. But then you find out in the end, ta-da! Just kidding, it was all Christianity. And um, <laughs> and so, uh, what was my point? So, so yeah, that that that's very much in line with Mother Teresa. So, so this, you know, uh, I would like to identify with the suffering of God, is what the hierophant says when he to be close dangs, to him on the cross. When he deigns to to yeah. say, "This is the, my suffering, and I'm representing God," and uh, Mother Teresa said, "I want to identify with that suffering. I've fucking been there too. I've totally been there. I've cut myself five times in all the Jesus wound spots and gone through the fourteen stations daily. I've done all that." Um, so, you know, I've gone up to Mater de la Rosa and very solemnly gone up to all those statues and uh, all of that. And, and I, that. I, yeah, and then I kind of like moved on. And, 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 and so I, I no longer think that that is the penultimate appropriate way to identify with God. Ta-da! I, I don't, I mean, I think it's, there's wisdom in being able to confront LDX, life, death, resurrection. Okay, so the universe, you know, it's probably going to fizzle out one day, but out of its ashes, another big bang will come, and then people will be having the same conversation we're having right now, but they'll right. be green and have eyes in different places. And then, <laughs> great, and then and then that'll fizzle out. So it's all so it's happening on a, it's happening now, 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 and it's happening on a grand scale. It's happening on you know my cat's going to die. That'll be sad. Um, it's the I love Jamie. One of us is going to die on the other. We don't know who it's going to be. One mm-hmm. of us is going to be here all alone, going, "Oh, I'm sad." Most likely, yeah. God, God willing, we should, you know, like, you could you go together. Last that long. Know. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. Anything's but, possible. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, LBX, right? That's what it is. That's the ability to confront and get beyond fear of death. And, and, and in the Golden Dawn, they train you in a certain way to deal with fear of death. They, they start you out. The first thing you see, you take off the hoodwink, and someone's there with a sword saying, Fear is failure! And you're like, oh, shit! And then at the very end, someone's in a red robe saying, I am God, but I'm actually Osiris. It's an Egyptian thing. Smell my suffering. And, um, and so that's what you get kind of indoctrinated into as your personification of God. But I, I like other personifications of God, like Krishna, you know, or... or, or uh, Shiva, Shiva, you know, or, or you know, uh, David Bowie. I'm really into David Bowie, um, you know, or myself, I, you know, or Crowley, whatever. I, you know, it's it, it it's all starting to look the same to me. The Baphomet symbol works, um, you know. It, it it it's all kind of it's all one, you know. <laughs> and there's there's people who are separatists. Some of them wear black hoods. Some of them wear white hoods, and. Uh, 
Well, you know, you gotta love them too, I guess. You know, yeah. I, uh, all parts of the body well, don't have it, the same function. Everybody is acting out their own <sighs> drama, yeah, in their own way, and yeah. a lot of it is simply therapy. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's group therapy. <laughs> when, you were, when you were talking about these friends of yours that are Satanists and and yeah. and M, I imagine that what they're doing is that they're acting out something that is going to help them to heal. Yeah, they exactly. need to. They need to externalize it and form a relationship with it so they can accept that part of themselves. Yeah. We all have that in us. Yeah, yeah. It's like a Jungian thing. And they, 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 know, they know Jung, if nothing else. They know the shadow. So it's very much about, okay, this is the shadow. I love you, shadow. And, yeah, to and, integrate uh, it. Yeah. Self-acceptance. Totally. totally. Um, yes. Well, the... Uh, the imagery that you are describing in these Golden Dawn ceremonies and initiations, beautiful, it's, right? it's beautiful yeah. and it's poetry. Yeah, it's, but you can still see the limitations of it. And it's very, there's a lot of melodrama yeah. built into it. Yeah. And it's an external thing that's acted out. You can see what happened to Crowley, out, and Yates. And it must have a, an effect internally on the psychologically on the yeah. unconscious yeah now, i guess if it's done in the right in the right way watching the matrix it will produce does something similar it will everybody produce. who's seen the matrix can relate to each other as people who've seen the matrix mm-hmm. the same thing with golden dawn initiates you know as we we've, we've all been there we've all stood between the pillars while someone told us the secret handshakes thinking about the guy that yelled at us and thinking about the guy that seemed to be the son reconciling everything and how how it's all about not going too far towards severity not going too far to mercy and 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 how cool the aesthetic is of uh red socks on black and white tile like we've all had that experience it's a very specific experience to have all mm-hmm. so you meet a stranger and you find out oh oh you're, you're traditional little nod what a fucking trip, right? You know, but it doesn't mean that it's the truth. You know, I, I I'd say far from it. I'd say it's just as far from it as Queen Victoria. You know, but uh, mm. but but uh, it's 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 a good cure for Christianity. It's a rite of passage, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> a pretty dramatic one. I mean, particularly when you get down to cutting yourself and all that stuff. Well, not everybody oh, does that. Not that was something that was added by our Voldemort character. That was uh, that's oh. that wasn't traditional. He was bringing in, you know, more ancient, more traditional elements. You know? Outer, more outer drama. Yeah. But if it if it changes what's inside, yeah, then it's going to have a therapeutic, spiritually nourishing effect. Yeah. But if it doesn't, then it's just just superficial drama. Yeah, well, that's going to depend it, on it, the heart of the it practitioner. It can take over your life, you know. Like it's, it's. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it, it has an effect, but I mean, when it, when people use the word spiritual, I think watching The Matrix to me is more spiritual, you know, um, than going through all that. But I think all of that is the Victorian equivalent of watching The Matrix, mm-hmm. is to go through the entire Golden Dawn system up to five equals six. Um, but these days, thank God, people can just watch The Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> Much easier, yeah. Quicker too, yeah. And then do their derivative uh, sci-fi. You know, that's where things are at now. I like to have. I, 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 yeah, I'm done looking at where where things used to be. You know, I'd 
But um, should we should we wrap up? Do you have any final words? Um, um, do you have any interesting random memory of my dad that you haven't told me about yet? Random memory of your dad? Yeah. Well, he was I don't know, probably nothing I haven't already told you, but he was a very uh, very intense person. Yeah. Very alive and very engaged. And he didn't suffer fools easily. Yeah. I know. I've been I've been doing the, the horrible disservice of uh, doing my best to channel him tonight. Mm. <laughs> I say tonight because I assume people are listening at night, but of course it's morning for us. So yeah, or afternoon. <laughs> yeah, it's about one one twenty. Uh well maybe the next time we could if we do this again. Oh yeah, uh, no, I want to do this as many we times could talk, as we can. We could talk about that experience I had, which was in the oh, last chapter. Oh, do you have time? Do you in the last chapter you, of this book and in the in the Mondo of Love? Yeah, that is that was the the psychedelic experience itself. Well, it wasn't it wasn't a psychedelically induced experience. Okay, but uh, was it a flashback? No, 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 it wasn't that either. <laughs> it was a very transforming experience. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I, I've had some really transformative psychedelic experiences. To me, the only real... I mean, I'm a little bit in agreement with one thing Terrence McKenna said. <laughs> that he, he was saying he's tried Buddhism, he's tried voodoo, he tried this, he tried that, he tried Christianity, he tried mysticism, he tried this, he had that. And then finally, he tried psilocybin in a darkened room. And that was it. That was what... That was what gave him his religious experience that he was able to, to find his true self and awaken out of the great sleep. And, and, and I'm mm. like, yeah, yeah, isn't it? Isn't that true? Yeah. I mean, I had my, my acid experience in Philosophist that helped a lot, and then I had more recent DMT experiences that helped me get back to what's really important and, mm. and get my head out of all that sewery mirror refraction. It's like, you know, there's mirrors, and then there's shattered mirrors, you know? And when you're still, it's like when your mirror is shat. I mean, in this example, I'm talking about like a church being a mirror. It does its best to be an image of, you know, but then when it gets shattered and it's still going and it's going while it's shattered, it's just like a living embodiment of everything it shouldn't be, you know. But at the same time, it's really, really, really obviously not what it purports to be. So you couldn't possibly fall for the, for the trick. And so you can kind of say, well, in, a, in some ways I prefer this to a really perfect order. Because <laughs> wouldn't that suck if there was someone at the head that everybody believed was truly the embodiment of everything that was good with the world. And people want me to head an order. They say, we should start a new Golden Dawn order and you'll be the chief so adept, BT. And I'm like, fuck you! <laughs> you know? yeah, there. Say, get, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> get thee behind me, Satan. They're tempting you with Power and control yeah. and yeah. Yourself so I'm giving up. it all away in the podcast as much as I possibly can, <laughs> and uh, and while I'm alive, you know, just because that's all I have to offer. I, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying here's a bunch of stuff. Take it, have it, have these experiences. You know, like I, I listen to all the podcasts. I know this isn't out there. You know, like so. So now you have it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can read a longer version of that experience in the last chapter of the Mondo of Love. The model of love is unpublished. What's the published right. one? When this is the book, it's called The Will of Divine Love. The Will of Divine Love by Kes Fry. The last chapter is all about the experience that wasn't psychedelically induced. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't. 
<laughs> but, Did it happen after you took the psychedelics? But it was. Oh yeah, I had taken them, I had taken them prior to this, but by coincidence, I wasn't under the influence right, of that right. at the time of the experience. Do you want? Have you seen the temple? Do you? Do you want to take a look? I was in there when you and. Uh, <coughs> And uh, we did some Jamie some magic. Did, did a little magic. Oh, cool! My sister and I were in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With yeah, you guys. Oh, I remember now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was interesting. It's about the same. <laughs> well, I would like to check it out before I leave. I see you've got. The I did a traditional bird. Golden Dawn Requiem for a guy. Okay, so, so there's this guy named Freddie Naff, and he looks just like David Bowie, and he also, like David Bowie, struggled with heroin use, and. Uh, he was also a musician, and he also liked Golden Dawn. He had a lot of things in common with David Bowie. Mm. And he introduced his friend back in the 80s to this thing called Golden Dawn magic. And that friend, after getting, you know, being really kind of interested in it, eventually joined the order. I met him, and then he lived here in that room for a while. Oh. And uh, then anyway, more recently, that was all in 1995, you know, well, I mean... 80s, You've been living in this house for about 20, Long time, yeah. 20 years, huh? Yeah. Well, he, so the, his friend passed away, the one that got him interested in Golden Dawn to begin with, so he asked me to perform a traditional, you know, Golden Dawn Interwarrior Requiem in a Masonic Hall and in uh, in Holy Cross Cemetery for, for a man I've never met, and uh, I was really honored to to do it. I brought all the furniture, and, and I did, did it absolutely sincerely. You know, people who know me know that as much as I talk shit when it comes to actually performing the ritual work, and that's people get confused, and that's where they think I have well, a split personality. You're in recovery. I'm totally sincere about it, but yeah. at the same time, I, I put I'm, it down. I'm the most vocally yeah. uh, against it. Yeah. Yeah. You, well, you're in recovery. We need to bear that in mind. From yeah. Having been in something that you found to be not good for you. Yeah. And you've gone out of it, but yet there was. There was a true self aspect to it as well as a false. I gained something right. from it. I can, yeah. I can, I can help to uh, um, talk about at least some of the pitfalls, yeah. and, and also some of the things that are that are good about. Yeah, people need both of those. Yeah, yeah. To keep the right balance. Yeah. So I mean, that was my idea about this new esotericism: is a practice that balances, counterbalances the other. All the other practices. It makes me think of one. Uh, speaking of Alan Watts, he uh, was talking about in the West we tend to. Uh, he used the metaphor of the thermostat, like if you put it at like no less than seventy three, but no more than seventy four, then it's like always turning on and off. Like and then the heat comes on and then turns off, and then the air conditioner oh. comes on and then turns off, and the heat comes on and then turns. And we tend to do that in the West, so that we like. Are just kind of walking our little line, and we're not mm. getting into trouble and all that, and that's kind of how we've been uh, indoctrinated to be civilized, you know. And uh, you know, and then like like you know, you blow blow open those tantric channels in the forest. I, you were talking about um, giving consent, and I was thinking that maybe the first thing you should do is be like, I refuse. I refuse. I mean, that'd really make it absurd and fun, and, 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 and it brings out the absurdity. Like, I refuse to let my true self work within me. I refuse, you know, and then eventually you realize how totally fucking absurd that is, and then you say, okay, I'm ready. 
I consent. <laughs> I just... And then you see what that feels like, and then you get a flow reversal, and then you get you've blown open all the channels, and then you're not you're not you're not resisting, refusing. You know, you're consenting by choice because you prefer to consent rather. Well, it than has refuse. to be a free choice. There is something called the four consents that I just remembered that mm-hmm. I ought to tell you about. These are like four consents that the Spirit asks of us in our life. And the first, the first one is in the earliest part of life, and that is we are asked to consent to our basic goodness. Mm. And yeah. of course, a lot of times people have trouble doing that because of wounding and so forth. The second one comes around puberty and through adolescence and into early adulthood. We're asked to consent to our creative energies, to our sexual energy and all the creative energies and gifts that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I wanted to cut off my balls at that point. I wasn't consenting anymore. <laughs> uh, seriously, when I started hitting puberty, I was like, fuck this. Seriously. I have to go through life as a man. You know, <laughs> like, I, I didn't want to be a woman either. I didn't, you know, I just didn't want gender. I didn't want duality. I didn't, I pr- much preferred the way it was before when I didn't have those forces going on. So, and it was all a joke. And we used to joke about sex when, when, when I was seven and eight. So and nine. leaving childhood. <laughs> That's a that's a passage. That's a, drag. that's a passage that's that's uh, difficult for all of us. Yeah, and I never got over that. Sadly, in our Western society, we don't have any really good ritual ways of facilitating that transition. Mm-mm. As many, I mean, some people get bar mitzvahs. You yeah, know, well, Aboriginal societies yeah. and. There are some traditional. Well, they're they're post-Aboriginal, that, but that yeah. That, yeah. I'm just kidding. So. Anyway, the second consent is consenting to our sexual energy, our creative energies, and our and our gifts, our talents, our yeah. abilities. The third consent is to consent to our, our limitations as yeah. human beings, to accept and consent, especially as we continue growing older. Then the final consent is to consent to our death. Oh, consenting to limitations. I like that a lot. Because that's that's exactly what we would run into at the temple because we get a lot of fringe, you know. But we basically get people who wanted to shoot fireballs out of their fingers, and they weren't into their limitations. They wanted they wanted the the, the break the laws of physics. They wanted to fly. They want you know to to teleport. And, they wanted superpowers. Yeah, like an eight year old. Yeah, yeah. And when you couldn't show them that you had superpowers or that you could do a spell and that someone would, you know, make a different decision, you know. I, I read, Power and control. Yeah, yeah, that's a big. That's a big hook. Yeah, I get. Can, I still get people. I, so I want to say every day, but maybe every three or four days, I'll get someone saying, "Can you help me? I have a problem with my, you know, relationship." I'm like, "No, no." Well, if that. we want to grow in love, truth, and freedom, we have to give that love, truth, and yeah. freedom to others. I mean, if somebody's asking you advice, that's one thing. But people want me to like do a tarot reading for their relationship issue. I'm like, no. I don't do that. I'm not that kind of magician. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll just give you a real short version of that experience. If you oh, want. yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. So this came totally unexpectedly. And I was sitting on this chair uh, meditating, and I was reflecting on the Bodhisattva ideal uh, of Mahayana Buddhism, which I was really into in, you know, at that time in my life. And all of a sudden, I felt this spinning energy in the third eye chakra. And it kind of increased, and it was sort of like this this dimensional thing opened up. And 
I felt myself drawn out of my physical body. I had a blindfold over my eyes, and there was the presence of this old soul, this higher being that I had a relationship with, kind of carrying me through this expanse of inner space mm. with a blindfold on. And it seemed like we went an immense distance. And at the same time, I was partially conscious of myself still sitting physically you know, in the chair in this apartment in San Francisco. And we finally came to what seemed like a top of a tall mountain. And we stopped, and then the blindfold was removed. Mm. And the old soul, we're like at the peak of this mountain, and it was, it was, it was darkness all around. We were at the top of this peak. The old soul, he went over and he did a full body prostration in front of something. And all of a sudden, it was like this, this lightning bolt of energy shot into his head, and his whole body was glowing, and was radiating out through his body with this great intensity. And then it stopped, and he got up, and then he gestured me to lie down in the same place where he was. So he was sort of showing me yeah. what I needed to do and what was going to happen. So, on the inner plane, I prostrated myself, and all of a sudden this, this bolt of really powerful energy, I felt something like topping, touching the top of my head, this bolt of energy came into the top of my head, and and it it filled me, and I was feeling this incredible feeling of love, and and purity, and it was just gradually radiating through my whole body, and at the same time I was conscious of myself physically sitting in meditation, and it was like this: this energy was so overwhelmingly pure and powerful. It was like it was too pure for me. I couldn't, I couldn't tolerate it. It was too much. Yeah. But, but it was like this divine, sacred energy, and like I, I can just say, it was love. It was an energy of love. It was really powerful. And I felt like it was, it was kind of just overwhelming. But if it stayed inside of me too long, it would just rip me apart because yeah. I wasn't pure enough to be able to assimilate and hold it in my energy centers. Yeah. So it was an overwhelming experience, and then the experience, that experience stopped, and I went out of myself through the top of my head, and I was, it was like I was inside this dark, very silent, peaceful bubble. And it was like I was sharing in this higher, this higher consciousness, which I could only call... God's consciousness. And intuitively, through that sharing, I became aware that God was present inside of every soul on earth and everywhere. That God loves everyone unconditionally and that the desire of this divine presence was that everyone would become conscious of the fact that this divine presence is within them because if they did they would be freed from their confusion and their suffering and they yeah. would realize that we're all one in this love but that the the wish of this higher being this higher power this higher presence was 
that I should do whatever I can to awaken that in myself and to help other people awaken it in them. And that was all nonverbal, but that was the message that I got, you know, very quickly through this altered state of consciousness. And then I came back kind of into my into myself and I got up, you know, from where I was prostrated. It was sort of like I had received a whole new awakening of my being and consciousness and was being given my marching orders in a way. Yeah. And so then the the blindfold was put back on me and this this spiritual guide started kind of flying me back, you know, towards the the material plane. And while we were going along, I was thinking, well, why is this blindfold on me? You know, and I became curious. And I thought, like, well, I'm just going to take a peek. And so I kind of just lifted up a corner of the blindfold. And as soon as I did, I beheld underneath me this kind of like black ring, and inside of it was this eye, which I had encountered before in, a, in an actual psychedelic experience. And the eye was was looking at me with this piercing gaze, and it was starting to like draw me in. It, it struck total terror into me. It was like the complete opposite mm. of what I had experienced on the higher plane. Mm. And it was I felt like I was looking into hell. And and there was just a lot of horrible stuff going on there. Yeah, yeah. But all of a sudden, quickly, I just pulled the blindfold back down because I was scared shitless. Yeah this thing and it was like you know just totally overpowering mm. and so the way I've interpreted it now <laughs> was that I went I went like to the mercy sphere and it had that experience and when I pulled the blindfold up I was going over the severity sphere and I wasn't you know ready to face that mm. so I had to pull the blindfold down but this spiritual guide has already been through that and can you know, kind of has command over those yeah. those realms and could take me to where I went. And then I was brought back to where I was in my physical body and I was just really blown away. That experience completely changed my whole approach to life. Wow. So it was very powerful. And it was like a beginning, an initiation. And, you know, to initiate means to begin something so it was an initiation in the sense that I was shown something and my job is to work on myself and work you know, in the service of this so I get to the point where I can have access to that. What a trip. On my own. Now the I in um, Golden Dawn paradigm would tie in, uh, well in Hebrew with the I, with I-in, with the letter I in, which in Hebrew ties in with the devil card. Yeah, the devil card. Yeah, and Capricorn, which also ties in with the quote-unquote the gross regenerative powers of nature, speaking in Victorian, so gross would mean only the total, and um, Baphomet and all of that stuff. So, But we're talking about basically Malkut, but we're talking kind of specifically, I would say, about something that's very relevant to us as humans, which is, you know, rational consciousness operating within a bestial form. 
you know, us. <laughs> and, you know, that's our, that's our whole back and forth and the reason why we make rules and pretend they're laws and, 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 and punish each other for breaking them and all that is because we're animals trying real hard to, uh, to, to accommodate the fact that we're rational beings, <laughs> that we have intelligence, that we can mm. remember things, and we know we're going to die. And, and that's what that I... Uh, would represent in, in, in that context is that separation from God, the separation from Typhirit right. that happens between reason and, uh, you know, and yeah, be, that, being this, the heart of the soul of, of creation. The separate self sense as a, creation. The separate yeah. self as a human being. Yeah. And the message of this experience is that in spite of what we think we are, we all have that that higher divine principle in us yeah. and it's it's alive it relates to us and it wants us to know that that's what we really are yeah it yeah. longs for us to know that because it's so one with us that it's experiencing everything we're going through with us in a hidden way the yeah. last time i ha- i took a, what terence mckenna calls a heroic dose of mushrooms i uh, i saw a lot of eyes and uh, and i when i could roll my eyes back I'd get away from the, you know, I'd, I'd get up to a place where it all became one, they all came together, and I've seen, a, you know, mm. there's, a, there's a lot of artists who are depicting these things in their art, and it's like, oh yeah, he gets it, oh yeah, I've been there, you know, there's certain like ones where it's like, they're obviously very well depicted, uh, and based on a universal experience, apparently, apparently right. everybody has that experience when they get to that certain point in the trip, and, uh, you know, but the, 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 the light where it all comes together into sort of a pyramidal shape is up at the top, and then you look around you, and you see all the different eyes, and you don't know if they're mad at you or what, and <clears> some <throat> of them are brown, and some of them are blue, and they're blinking, and they're all, you know, and it's like, okay, Am I looking at ghosts? Are these the wings of the Archangel Azrael, the Archangel of Death? Mm. Is the veil between the veil of Paroket that that divides the 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 illusion of the material world from the truth of mm. of the all omnipresence of God actually just the wing of Azrael, or is it my ancestors looking at me from inside my own brain by way of my DNA? You know, and, and so I've got this sort of rational monkey mind, like trying to trying to figure out what the fuck the eyes are, but I certainly know what you mean when you talk about the eyes. And the idea that there's one big one that you move back down to when you're coming back but down from the higher realms is really kind of terrifying. It, would, you know? it, it was like <laughs> a it, magnetic it pull. Makes sense, <clears throat> it would suck you into this hell realm yeah. if you kept looking at it. And there's so. there's the, the Jesus stuff about the blind man. The blind man is born without sin, oh, yes. and uh, that that he who is blind is without sin because the eye causes you to sin. And uh, Hannibal Lecter elaborated on that point, you know, mm-hmm. something about coveting. Yeah, and innocence. So my my mission with centering prayer is in the service of that. Yeah, of the not eye, of, not of the eye. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the. Well, you have to get past the eye to get to your true self. Yeah. And so the thing that I was resolved to was I need to really straighten out my karma. Oh, Because whatever your karma is... Yeah, I'm all about that. That's what will pull you into that. That's the first thing you said that made sense. If you've got negative... I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. If you've got negative karma, then that that thing (coughs) will... That's what will draw you into that. Totally. that, That hellish state. Yeah. And so in this dimension of time, we can work it out 
bit by bit and not well, have it all come down on us. My mom used at to say once. you get what you believe, you get what you wish for, and if you have enough bad karma piled on top of you, you start wishing to cease to exist. And you do get what you asked for. You know, so I mean when we're talking about you know, I was I was kind of poo-pooing that the whole thing is based on this assumption from the Egyptians that everybody wants to avoid ceasing to exist and wants to be immortal. Well, I mean obviously I want to avoid ceasing to exist and try to be immortal if it's possible. Wow. I'm just resigned to the fact that maybe it's not. Or maybe we all already are immortal and we just don't know it or that it's it's an eternal thing. But I think that relaxing and mellowing the fuck out is really the way to go for me physically, and that if I stress out about trying to be immortal and I need to go run around feeding homeless people to do it then I'm going to kill myself and I've done it all wrong you know yeah. and and not that there's anything wrong with feeding homeless people it's just that maybe in my case at the moment I needed to like chill out and like it's, reflect on it's the spirit in which you act when yeah. you're doing it yeah. you know, what's motivating is it mixed motivation or is it more true and altruistic motivation yeah and not doing it because it's a compulsion but because your, the goodness in your heart inspires you to share and give what you can to others who are open to receiving I it. still do it automatically though I mean I, I, I like I, I I'm, I'm sort of pro it's like I don't know if I'd say, I'd say I'm programmed because I wasn't born into it you know, I chose it I, I at a certain point I decided to identify myself as an Orthodox Christian as a as a person who, that really surprised who, during me during the the nativity uh, time you know during the nativity fast if somebody asks me for my jacket I have to give it to them <sighs> because you just can't not and if somebody offers me a cookie I won't accept it because it's you know but you're still allowed to eat lobster you know I mean I went through <laughs> that phase where I, I, I identified with that, and, and, and I kind of approached it like a, a discipline. I mean, when I was a kid, I learned karate, so I would always compare it to that. Like, a discipline like karate, you know, something something that you choose to do, to walk the steps of, to show up on time and weigh the incense and say the stuff. And I was singing in the choir for four years, you know, and I, I, I did my time, I feel. I, uh, I, I, you know, because they say, there's all these prayers where they say, May you remember the ones who sang in the choir like the cherubim of the angels. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's me. And so I feel like I did my, I did every Sunday for four years. And so, you know, I've got that, I've got that working for me. When I get to St. Peter and he looks at the list of the stuff I did, I'll be like, you lied to that poor girl. You made her cry. I'll be like, I know, I know. It was fucked. And he'll be like, oh, but you sang in that Russian Orthodox choir for four years. Okay, okay, come on in, <laughs> you old rascal. <laughs> and that's how that'll go. <laughs> well, I was I was quite surprised last year when you told me that you'd been involved in in organized Christianity. Yeah, yeah, it is just the most perverse thing I can I do thinking, as my father's son. Yeah, well, that's a good way of rebelling against your dad. Yeah, sure. no, I mean I did it as a joke, but he was <laughs> laughing in my mind the whole time about it. You know, I was like, I was kind of doing it as a not as an act of rebellion. It was kind of partly my grandma, who was Christian, was still alive. So, and I was trying to convince her that the order was something she shouldn't hate or, you know, think was evil. So mm -hmm. I had told her that Martin Luther started the Rosicrucians and, and just didn't tell <laughs> anyone, you know, and, and I, I was horrible, you know, I was, I was a liar and a thief, you know, well, I wasn't a thief. I stopped stealing things when I was in Portal, so I was a thief through the outer order still. Mm. Yeah, and Hermes was a thief before he became, uh, became the messenger of the gods, but anyway. Yes, so anyway, we've covered quite a lot of ground here. And you can go through and edit this. Yeah, thing I don't know. I mean, you know, the, the footage I have of you and my dad is raw, you know. 
minutes. I don't it know. Is. I might just leave leave this raw. Because, I mean, we went through a whole journey. Like, in the first half, I was like, God, I'm just being a grouch. I'm turning, I'm, I, I don't feel good. I'm just, like, being reactive, you know. But then, like, in the second half, we, like, went to some other places and kind of kind of re, re-examined the first half. And so, you know, I mean, I think it would be interesting for people to come along for the journey and even for now for us <laughs> deciding to leave it raw. If they have the patience to listen to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I'm just too lazy to sit down and go through it, but I'm going to try to adjust the sound levels at least. Yeah. I don't think we mentioned any names we need to bleep out, did we? Um, any think. specifics? No, I said Voldemort at one point, but okay. Yeah, I mean, we don't bleep out Voldemort. We're not on Harry Potter rules here. Mm. Um, we use that as a bleep. But anyway, uh, so we covered covered just about everything. All right. All right. Well, let me take a look in your magic room there. Yeah, and uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. Well, my today. pleasure, and I hope that you know the listeners will. Find something worthwhile in this. I, I, I hope so. Something to I hope think so about, too. or maybe news you can use. Who knows? <laughs> okay. Have, have a good night. Thank you, Kess, for being our guest on the Esoteric Nerd tonight. I can't thank you enough, really, for recording that 90-minute interview with my dad back in 1990. Hey, 1990? 90 minutes? Maybe there's something to this. Thank you to Lon Milo Duquette for writing that poem. It occurs to me, in retrospect and listening to it, that I think that he was getting more at the fact that he had a lady there to help him. Maybe, Maybe I'm wrong about that, but... What I, my takeaway was, yeah, I think you're right. Thelema was entirely made up by Rose Kelly Crowley, whose name I didn't know until just now. Thank you, Rose Kelly Crowley, for being the author of The Book of the Law, which I still haven't read. Thank you to the monks on Mount Khoisan for the music. And as always, thank you to you the esoteric nerd listening to this podcast until next time <laughs> <laughs>